0: Six, two thousand seven. This is episode eleven of Potter Weekly. Welcome to the place
1: where the story never ends.
0: Welcome back to Fake Weekly, episode 11, everybody. I am Ryan. I'm Renna. And I am Phil.
1: I'd like to say welcome to Phil, who is doing guest host duty for us tonight, and we very much appreciate it. He was in a, an old school fanfic guy who was one of the people who had to wait anxiously for these new chapters to come out that we now have the luxury of reading all at one time. So I can't say away. envy him for that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so welcome to the podcast, Phil. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I just have to give Phil credit because right now he is podcasting to us from the Philippines. So it is what? Is it 12 hours ahead or is it 13 hours or behind? It, it's 12 hours ahead right now.
2: Uh, so it's about 9.15 in the morning.
0: That, that, I wow! Just, that, yeah, I mean, he even said, "Okay, so if we start podcasting at eight thirty, that I'm like, I'm not even touching on that one. I can't even figure out what time it is where rinna is, so we're just gonna have to go with that." <laughs> oh, there was one week, uh, there was one week where I was here, Rena was in um Central Time, Jen was in San Francisco, but she was traveling back at one point, and I was just sitting there like it's like an hour before we podcasted, but we were done. Oh, it was ridiculously terrible. So, so thanks for getting up so early to. Uh, to be with us this morning. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and where, where you come from in the fandom and why you're here?
2: Sure. Uh, well, as uh, Rina said, I'm one of the old school readers of After the End. And uh, the image that comes to mind is the commercial that was on years ago of a woman standing outside of a store saying, open, 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 because <laughs> as each chapter would be finished, uh, we would all have to wait very anxiously for the next chapter to come along. Um, so I started reading after the end when I believe only about 14 chapters had been written and, uh, as each new chapter came out, uh, those of us who were at the time in the Yahoo group would go in there and we would write our series and we would talk about the characters and we would debate over everything that was going on and it was great. It was, it was, uh, similar to the, to the podcast, uh, using the, the technology of the time. Um, I am a 32-year-old uh, father too. two, uh, my wife and kids are currently back in California. I'm over here in the Philippines on assignment, and um, just really excited to be here.
0: Well, that's great. I'm glad you uh, you found us. When we started the podcast, I put out word on the After the End Yahoo group that you know the podcast would be starting up. And with all Yahoo groups, they tend to get you know a fair share of spam and you know advertisements for Viagra and so forth. And um, I got a bunch of those in my inbox, and then after a while, I actually. Phil, were you the one that sent out the message telling everyone about the podcast?
2: Yeah, that's correct. I, I got very excited when I stumbled across it, and uh, the group obviously, since the fic, the fic has finished, the group has disbanded in a lot of ways. There aren't nearly as many members in there as there were when, when it was being written. But
1: sorry, Brenda's dogs are
0: are attacking her
1: right now. But please continue,
2: Phil. Sure. The, uh, the, the group disbanded in a lot of ways and there are a few key members who I still see messages from periodically and I figured, well those are the really diehard, really hardcore after the end fans so I need to let them know about this because anything that comes along that sort of reinvigorates this story. I am all for
0: Yeah, and it's one of the really cool things about it. I wasn't there in the beginning, but I know just talking to Genia, uh since we started doing this, she's gone back and has really gotten into, you know, after the end again and kind of dusted it off her, her bookshelf and she's having a lot of fun uh, getting back into this too. And Rena seems to be back with us after her dog's attack. Sorry. Hey, no problem. <laughs> we these dogs. are now uh, honorary co-hosts of the podcast. Yeah, so it was actually really interesting. Right When we started doing this podcast, we weren't sure how many people would listen, and um, it was really funny. Jen was the first listener to come along, and we were joking. We couldn't have Jen in the podcast because she was the listener, so we had to have her out there listening. And um, I I got your message on the Yahoo group, and I sent Jen an instant message saying, there's a guy out there named Phil who really likes us, and she's like, great. And I instant messaged her last night while she was actually recording. I'm like, Phil's going to be on episode 11. She's like, great, go, Phil. So it's kind of funny. So we kind of know you around here without actually having met you, so... Oh, thank you.
2: I'm my celebrity status has preceded me.
0: This is true. And you actually, you have some outtakes to plug. Is that right? Oh, yes, uh, I do. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, as the story was being
2: written, and then after the story was concluded, there were a few of us who decided to write some outtakes for various chapters. And by outtakes, what they really are is supplemental chapters, uh, really. Uh, I wrote two different outtakes. The first one occurred directly between chapters 10 and 11, and was a hairy, point of view outtake. It's very brief, but it was a hairy uh, point of view outtake where he was chasing the Dementor back to the prison because the Dementor that had escaped and gone to Stornoway. And I did a brief uh, outtake for after the end from his point of view on what, what he was thinking and what he was going through during the two days that he was chasing the Dementor all the way up the coastline. And then I did a slightly longer outtake that occurs right after the very late, really long chapter from hell that shows the after effects of Ron's healing session with Ginny from his point of view. Because if you recall from that chapter, the, the healing session was from Ginny's point of view. So I thought, well, it might be interesting to see how, how Ron reacted. And it it takes place once again, not during the healing session, but just after. So right after Ginny goes to bed. At the very, very end of, of that chapter, so just if you think of it as continuing on, but from Ron's perspective, uh, right. that's what the uh, the outtake is for.
0: You so say that was the chapter where uh, Ron tucks Ginny into bed and tells the bedtime story, right? Correct, yes. Okay. So it's essentially the
2: moment she falls asleep, that's
0: when my story takes over. That's great. Yeah, we're going to cover all of the yeah. um, outtakes in a few weeks when we're done with the, with the bulk of the story, so we're definitely going to uh, check yours out as well. Tell people where they can find the outtakes.
2: Uh, the outtakes can be found at the After the End group. Uh, I don't have the website in front of me at the moment, but the at and in the- Oh, please do. Please plug away.
1: <laughs> you can find Phil's outtakes, and you can find many other outtakes at the After the End Yahoo group, which is at groups.yahoo.com slash group slash after the end. Or you can just go to the Yahoo group's homepage and, and search for After the End, and, and you'll find it that way.
2: Mm-hmm. and all the outtakes are inside the files section uh, in that group. We're going to have a great yeah.
0: outtake episode. I had, I had no idea, actually, that um, people other than Jenya and Arabella had written outtakes, so this is actually going to be a very fun episode when we get there in a few weeks.
1: Now, I have, I have actually I read one outtake that just really kind of irritated me the other day, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't one of yours. So
0: <laughs> If it was, we get some controversy in the show.
1: It was Remus and Sirius explaining to Harry that they were lovers.
0: Yeah,
2: and and that's what that was a topic of debate as this story was being written and as we were all reading it. And I really liked Terabella and Zenia's approach to it, where they they don't address it directly. I right. think they allow the readers to draw their own conclusions. And uh, and obviously that particular individual drew the conclusion that that was in fact the case. But to me that that almost cheapens it because it takes a very special, very intimate relationship. And turns it into something that one person thinks it is. And I prefer to look at it in in the terms of, well, whatever you think it is, that's what it can be for you.
0: Yeah, I agree with that completely. I mean, when I read it for the first time, I was actually curious in the early chapters if they were going to be uh, blatant about it. I mean, obviously, you know, as the Fit got on, I thought they were going to kill off uh, Remus. Or as I so eloquently put it, I thought, you know, Remus was going to bite it. But I was waiting for them to address a relationship between Remus and Sirius, and when they didn't, I just assumed I was wrong, and I kind of moved off and forgot about it. And then when we started the podcast, you know, Jenya even said, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder. If you want to read into a relationship, we've given you enough pieces that you can assume that, and if you don't, well, that's fine, too. So I'm actually, as I see the two of these characters interact, I actually am trying to push myself to see a relationship there, just to see how well I can read the fic both ways. And it's a really really good way of doing it because like you just said everyone can kind of pull from it what they want so yeah and plus it's one of those things where it's so cleverly written that when you kind of bang the audience or the readers over the head with the gong and say you know oh, you know of course there's a relationship you know they're lovers it, it, it kind of just you know almost spoils the the fun of it
2: right uh, as these think it would be written Folks would look into it and look for little clues. Like there was one, in an early chapter, there was one night where Remus and Sirius both walked past Ginny and Hermione's door and they both said goodnight at the same time. So people are like, oh, oh, are they going to the same room together? And then they, and they, realized that Lupin Lodge only has three bedrooms. And, and so the, the, the speculation really started kicking in at a certain point. And I, I guess it's fun because it gives people a chance to, to look for those things. But yeah, Was it
0: stated there were only I, I, three bedrooms in Lupin Lodge? Because I remember she said that they played around with the number of bedrooms, but I didn't remember them ever. You know, I have to look it up specifically,
2: but I thought for sure at some point in the story – It makes mention of Lupin Lodge only having three bedrooms. I'm not positive on that though. I'll have to, I'll have to see.
0: Well, then you can go either way. I mean, Ron and, you know, Harry share a room, you know, in the early parts of the story and, you know, uh, Ginny and Hermione share, you know, a bedroom for most of the story. So you could even, you know, argue they have the Lucy and Ricky beds. I mean, it's really written very cleverly that you can just pull from it whatever you want. Right. Before we go on with the discussion segment of tonight's episode, where we're going to be discussing chapters 35 and 36 of uh, after the end, I'd just like to let you know of some ways that you can contact us if you hear anything that we say that you want to respond to, or if you'd like to chime in with thoughts of your own. You can leave us voicemail up to two minutes in length by calling 781-352-0643. That number again is 781 352 If you have the Gizmo Project, you can call uh, username Weekly and leave us a voicemail there as well. Or you can email an audio file to staff at PotterficWeekly.com and we can get your thoughts uh, onto the show. As always, we invite anyone listening to join our forum. Uh, Just go to PotterFickweekly.com and click on the forum and sign up. We have a lot of uh, very active members there and we have some great discussions going. And the interview with Arabella and Genya, which we've been promising you all along, is probably going to be released sometime in May. Uh, we're making arrangements now to record that for everybody. So if anybody has any questions for Arabella and Genya about anything related to themselves after the end, you, you know, fan fiction in general, anything you want to ask, or if you have any uh, just thoughts you want to address to them, if you want to thank them for you know writing. After the end, as much as we all do, uh, just send in your voicemails, send in your questions, email us your questions, and uh, we'll definitely uh, see if we can get you some answers by that episode. So definitely uh, start thinking about that now. And uh, I think that's all we have. So why don't we jump into the uh, discussion of Chapter 35, which is Outbursts. Uh, Phil, did you want to uh, start us off tonight? Uh,
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, One of the things that I really enjoy about Uh, The story in general, and I know it's been brought up in this podcast before, so I, I won't belabor the point, is the amazing attention to detail that the authors gave to making sure they used just the right words to describe what was going on and to create a visual. It's also really nice to see the battle that took down the Great Hall actually occur, because since the prologue of this story, we've been promised information about what exactly happened on that final day. What exactly happened during that battle? It was really nice to finally get to the point where you could read and see at least some of exactly what took place during that final battle. And I will say that during the sequence where the toast was being given uh, by McGonagall and Hermione was distracted, uh, she was, uh, you know, thinking back, even in her dream, thinking back to when she was trying to convince Harry to do the Fidelius charm, to go into hiding, to go away, that when it came back to the toast and Blaise Sabini stood up, that the, the betrayal that took place when that happened actually hit me, I think, as much as it did Hermione. It, it caught me as much off guard as it did her. In the story, where she she was surprised to see the room standing up, and then she saw a few Ravenclaws and some Hufflepuffs, and even a couple of younger Gryffindors stand yeah. up, and she thought everybody was just standing to honor the toast and to honor their their last day at Hogwarts. And then the next thing you know, we're in the battle, and it it was it was very well done, I think. Uh, in, in that
0: regard. Yeah, and I think, um, one of the things, uh, Phil and I were talking before we started recording tonight, uh, Phil has only read after the end in terms of fan fiction, so he's kind of new to the whole, uh, to the whole fandom, whereas I know Renner and myself have, have been around a little bit longer and have read more fics. The final battle is always something that is the focal point of any fic, especially one that completes the Hogwarts years. Some fics, you know, go off in different directions and completely ignore it, other ones really build up to it. And, there are many different ways, I find at least, that they tackle it. Some ways, I think, work exceptionally well. Other ways, they try and be too inventive. And you know, I'll use the word, the phrase high tech, even though that's not really what I'm going for there. They try and find these magically induced technobabble solutions to how to defeat Voldemort. And I, I think when you get into that area, and I'm a big Star Trek fan, and I think that one of the things that Weakens the story when you get into that area is when you basically, you know, just make up a spell that will kill Voldemort, but really don't have any emotion or any sacrifice or any thought behind it. It, it, It's boring as hell for the reader. And I think what makes this scene, you know, as Hermione is, you know, remembering back to um, McGonagall's toast and remembering back, you know, the betrayal of the students, what makes it so powerful, like virtually everything else in this fix so far, is that it was such small things that happen but they were so effective that they completely take your breath away. And Renner and I got to this a couple episodes ago, back in episode nine. One of the things that's really striking, I think about this fic is that when you look at the Weasleys, you see a family in its golden age. They've lost a son, but everyone else is healthy. Everyone else is thriving. Everyone else is falling in love. You know, Molly is, you know, taking in children and, you know, Bill is, you know, finding romance and Ron is finding romance and Arthur is finding success and everything's working relatively well for them. But, when you think back to just a few weeks ago, a few months ago, they were in the midst of war. And when you say war and you look at how other fics and how J.K. Rowling articulate a wizarding war, Arabelle and Junior really made it that much darker and that much more hopeless. And when you look at this, you have a situation where Hermione and Ron and the Weasleys are going home to the burrow. But you get the sense with Hermione talking to Harry in that flashback within the flashback that the burrow is going to come under attack soon. They're going there, but their time is running out. Voldemort is everywhere. The Ministry is failing everywhere. This is a completely hopeless situation. Harry is going to go into hiding, and he knows he's never going to see his friends again. And you're literally seeing Hermione and Harry nearly saying goodbye to each other. He's going to leave in the middle of the night, and he's never going to see these people again. And I just think this scene does such a good job of showing that even though we're 35 chapters into this, and we think, you know, we've... You know, we've gotten annoyed at Charlie for being stubborn, and we get irritated at Bill for not handling floor correctly. A year ago, these people had no chance of winning, and, the, and all hope was virtually gone. I think A just do such a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous job of showing us a final battle that's realistic, that's bleak, and really you know cuts the reader when they read it. It's not the traditional final battle that you find in a lot of other fics.
1: I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying. But I think part of the reason why I agree with it so much is that in uh, in J.K. Rowling's final battle, I seriously doubt, uh, I mean, we see from, obviously from the cover of Deathly Hallows, that it looks like the final battle is going to take place not at Hogwarts. I mean, and obviously before the cover art was released, a lot of people, I think, assumed that the final battle would happen in Hogwarts. A little bit of that changed after Dumbledore died, but it's always seemed to me like, I think I would have been really surprised if there would have been this many students involved in the battle in canon.
2: I I agree with
1: that. In this, yeah, because in this chapter, you know, it is actual students that are hurting the rest of the kids and sending them out to their death. And I really don't think that the final battle in canon will have that many students involved in that capacity. You know, some of the older Slytherins, and we might see some former Slytherins come back in that aspect. And, you know, from other houses, of course, but, you know, this is implying that they've got younger students. I thought it was know, interesting and- that they
0: mentioned the fact that they were younger students, especially the Gryffindors. I thought they don't give you any information as to why the students portray the other students, but the fact that they said the younger students... I think was the most striking about the scene. And I'm going to agree with you. I, for anyone who's read anything by Patrick Ryder, Lavender Brown, she has a trilogy that's um, incomplete, but the first two installments are complete. Uh, the second of which is uh, the Final Reckoning, which is the seventh year, a Hogwarts fic. And I think that the final battle is portrayed in that fic. is is It also involves Hogwarts students. and It's a very, very dark. Yeah, very, I think, realistic uh, final battle. It kind of reminds me of this one a little bit. It's it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very depressing uh, final battle. And I think the fact that when you look at the younger students, you have to imagine how bleak in both of these effects, or especially, you know, let's concentrate on after the end. You have to see how bleak the world is. You know, Voldemort is winning everywhere. You know, the Weasleys are standing tall. They're standing proud, but they're about to get wiped out. Harry Potter is about to go into hiding. Hogwarts is, is, is you know, virtually empty. And, you know, compared to its prime, you know, people are afraid you know, hope is is virtually gone, Dumbledore is dead, the Ministry is in shambles. I think even by this point, the Ministry had been essentially destroyed. I think the attack on Diagon Alley had already happened, um, and I think Fudge was already dead probably by the final battle, and actually he was dead by the final battle. You must imagine that Voldemort is recruiting everywhere, and if you're a young Gryffindor and you know that the Slytherins are very powerful, that the Dark Wizards are very powerful, they're going to come after you and they're going to say, You're going to fight with us or we're going to kill your family. And you're 11 years old. What do you do? And right. they went after the young Gryffindors. I think they went after most of the Hufflepuffs. I think there were some Ravenclaws in there too, and the bulk of the Slytherins. And, you know, when, I think what you said, Phil, is when you picture the scene, I think you're kind of picturing, you know, maybe Philosopher's Stone or uh, Chamber of Secrets. You're picturing, you know, the Great Hall Full. This is probably a, a very. You know, relatively empty Great Hall, you have McGonagall's speech, and I think, you know, it was essentially the element of surprise. And these people had this plan for a very long time. And one thing I just mm-hmm. want to add um, before I turn it over a little bit is I love McGonagall's speech. She's trying to be uplifting, but she's failing so much, and she's staring right at the trio, and she knows that this is it. And I love her final line, which I think really sums up how hopeless the situation is. You know, it's not a grandiose speech. She wishes everyone useful lives. And just think about the phrase. Right. It's not, I wish you godspeed and great success, you know, best wishes, you know, comebacks. I wish you useful lives. She's sending these people out to die and she knows that a lot of her students will die. She knows that things are coming to an end and that it doesn't look good. I wish you can be useful. If you give your life next week, I hope it's for something. I mean, it just, that really just, it gets you. Just that one word, the word useful just really got to me when I read this.
2: No, I agree. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting when you, when you read. The speech that was being given, and actually, A and Z do mention at the beginning of this chapter that the Great Hall is rather empty. Uh, Hermione looks around during the speech and realizes that there are so many students who aren't gone, and she doesn't specifically say whether or not the students are dead or if they were just pulled out of school. But yeah, there's that there's that foreboding there. There's that that sense that this moment that should have been sad anyways, just for the sake that you're leaving the place that you love so well, suddenly it turned very tragic. And that, to me, was a moment where it really turned the corner. And, um, you know, so just with, with some of the descriptions that happened as the battle was going on, it really painted that picture of this, this moment that would be, you know, it would be an <laughs> allynchalry. But it turns into a devastating moment. It's, it's, it's very powerful.
1: I do have to say one thing and this is in honor of, uh, Jules on the forum. I think everyone who has visited our forum knows that Jules is a big fan of Neville. She is his number one fangirl. They're separating the students and they're sending the muggleborns and the half-bloods outside to to die and they're sending the purebloods back into the castle and they send Neville and they tell him to go back into the castle and he marches outside
0: he won't go
2: he's
1: not going to hide he's going to go out and fight and from I mean from what we can tell they've already gone through all of the Hufflepuffs and all of the Ravenclaws and no one has had that courage yet until Neville
0: and Lavender right. does too doesn't she
1: Parvati does
0: is Parvati, okay. because
1: Lavender is a half Lavender is sent left to begin with okay it's Parvati that chooses to go outside.
0: In her mind, he loves Parvati at that moment.
1: Like Phil was saying earlier, this was before Order of the Phoenix. This was before we saw Neville able to stand up to anyone, really. Yeah. This true. story was one of the first ones that actually said, you know what? Neville's going to stand up and fight and, I mean, and they, I mean this is another instance where they got it like right on the nose because yeah. this is a character that so many people have just written off and when it comes down to it he is just as strong as everyone else And it may take him five minutes longer to get there, but he's going to get there by God, and he's going to stay until it's
0: over. Absolutely. One thing which is just frightening when you even think about what's happening here, and obviously, you know, not to summarize that everyone's read it, but you have obviously, you know, most of the students catch everyone by surprise, and they completely incapacitate everybody, and they march them to their deaths. Back in one of the earlier chapters when we were talking about the Dementor attack on Hogwarts at the end of their fifth year, if that attack had succeeded, it would have completely you know, taken out essentially a generation worth of British wizards. And that's what's going to happen here too. So the ministry, you know, has been attacked. The minister is dead. Diagon Alley is in ruins. And now they're going to wipe out every student at Hogwarts and they're going to kill Harry Potter. I mean, this would have been the final decapitating blow. And it just, it just astounds me so much that it, Talk about pulling all of your eggs in one basket. If this, if this, you know, I mean, if this attack had succeeded, that would have been it. I mean, one thing that even jumps at me too: they knew that something was going to happen at Hogwarts. Remus and Sirius and Snape had discovered that an attack was going to happen. They got word from Pettigrew that something was going to happen. Is that correct?
1: I believe so.
0: Like, even McGonagall must have known that something's about to happen, so I didn't get the sense reading it that this was a complete shock, and they didn't anticipate something happening. It, it was curious to me reading through the chapter for the next time. All I could think of is, well, where is the order? Where are the or Someone's going to come and help them. And obviously, you know, that does happen, but it... It seemed like reading this this was a complete surprise to everybody, and they never expected this, and there's no hope, and there's no help coming, and they're on their own and Hermione better find a way to get through the ropes, or else that's it and you know if Sinastra hadn't you know saved them um you know it just I was waiting for something to happen, and it, it it just seemed to me like there should have been some reference you know in their minds other than hermione. Realizing that Snape wasn't in the room, that maybe the author was downstairs, or maybe she should find a way to warn the author. I was just waiting for something. That's the only thing that really pulled me out of the story during my subsequent uh, read through here.
1: Well, I mean, and I I understand your point, and I, I mean, to an extent, I was thinking that way, but also, it kind of comes down to this you don't expect a bomb threat on the last day of school. It's kind of like, okay, well, we made it through the year, okay, everyone's leaving tomorrow. Not a big deal. I mean, it, well, I don't want to say not a big deal, but. I mean, do you know what I'm trying to say? I I'm do say it very badly. Uh, no, no, I know. I get what, <laughs> I get what you're saying.
0: It just seems like, you know, if you know that you're basically it and everything of value to Voldemort is in one room and he could really strike a huge blow by attacking this, that you don't put everyone in one room, you know, without any security. It reminds me of the State of the Union address. They always leave like the one guy out of the room just in case it just seemed like they had everything in the room and there was just no expectation of it. And maybe they never anticipated the students mm-hmm. would would fight back. They put the,
1: all of their bridge officers in the same shuttlecraft.
0: Exactly. <laughs> you know, if anyone's ever watched Star Trek, yeah. it's always all of like the senior people who always beam down to the planet and get taken prisoner at the start of the episode. And all you, you can think of is, okay, we left the, the cadet, the trainee, and the guy who can't tell left from right in charge of the ship. So I'm sure we'll be fine.
1: Or, you know, the flip side is you have your Ensign Ricky. <laughs> 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 you know.
2: Ensign um, meat. we used to call him.
1: Oh, God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if it was next generation, we'd love to
2: knew You knew. You knew
1: that he was going down to the planet, but he wouldn't come back.
2: <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, I mean, just, just commenting on it, I, I do agree in some ways that it is, uh, one of the things that has happened throughout the story is that, and really this has happened in canon as well, these kids, and they really are just kids, are desperately trying to hold on to whatever they can from their childhood, from from their normal life. And I think that maybe even if they had the sense that something might be coming, they weren't about to miss the graduation ceremony for the chance that something might happen. They, they just, they, and, and Hermione echoes it in, in her thoughts while she's sitting there at the table. There's part of her that just wants to to leave. It doesn't want to be there. There's also a part of her that says, no, this is, this is Hogwarts. This is my last day here. I, I'm not going to miss this. I'm not going to allow Voldemort's and his armies to, to stop me from going to the graduation ceremony at my own school. So I think even if they had that warning, even if there was that, that foreboding, I think that maybe they thought, well, we're going to do this. We're not going to allow the terror of the possibility that an attack might be coming to stop us from going to this.
1: I'm oh, I, I shows I'm even suggesting that.
0: Yeah, I am even suggesting that. I think what I was suggesting, and maybe I'm not doing a good enough job of articulating this, is mm-hmm. I got the sense that the order knew something was going to happen. I would have even have preferred it. And I, and I just want to preface this. I love this chapter. It's one of my favorites in the story. This is just something that jumped out at me during the subsequent read-through. I would have loved something where maybe, like, Sirius mm-hmm. or uh, Remus were outside, you know, guarding the place and got taken Captive themselves, or maybe you know, Hermione looks out the window and sees Remus outside with a wand, or something, just some indication that people are watching and people are trying to help, and maybe that would have. Brought on complaints that you know you're you're removing the tension because you know there's like a cop outside who's about to come in and save the day. It just seemed to me like you know everyone was expecting an attack and you know everyone got taken prisoner and you know where are the people who were supposed to be guarding them? That was just the one thing that just
1: but they, the the order was there though. They were just right, outside. And, were they outside or were they in, they in the be... basement? I thought
0: they were in the dungeon with Snape. I can't re- I can't recall.
1: Okay, they ran outside the entrance doors. Hermione tried to process what happened. Oh yeah, well Professor Sinester is a double agent. Here. And
2: right. She, it says Ron. showed the door open. open.
1: She saw several members of the order already fighting on the front lawn.
0: So they were waiting for everyone so, to come but, outside though. Okay.
1: Right. They were they were already outside. And I think that is part of the battle plan was obviously twofold. And rather than try to stop it on the inside, they knew that these kids I mean, obviously these students could have killed anybody in the Great Hall. Yeah. But they didn't support right. their orders. So rather you than try to go inside or, yeah. right, rather than try to go inside and stop things inside, the order was outside trying to hold off the attack to begin with, to try to protect the students once they were sent outside.
0: That's
2: true. Okay. Right. And and the whole story is really told from Hermione's perspective. So basically just what she's seeing in this battle. And she's also away from her dream just as she gets outside. So we don't we don't get to see at this point the entire battle. We have to read about that a little bit later on. So it's just right up to the moment where she finally gets her senses back about her. She gets her wand out and she dives into the battle. And at that exact moment, she wakes up. And so it's nice because it's a taste of what that final battle was without showing us the entire final battle.
0: Well, we get the final battle, I think, in many different pieces. We get the piece uh, where we actually see Harry defeat Voldemort. I believe it was back in the wedding chapter. Um, And we get, you know, uh, from Halloween, we get Ron uh, recalling that a large number of the students uh, stood up against them. Uh, One thing I do really appreciate about the chapter is because it's Hermione's perspective and because the attack was meant to uh, incapacitate and confuse uh, the prisoners, Hermione can't see a lot. She can see, you know certain people she can see um you know Gin- I bow. believe it was it she can see Jenny, and Ginny didn't look afraid. Jenny was looking at Harry. She could tell that I think it was Pansy had a wand up against her and she really wanted to break Pansy's bones. Um she she couldn't see the teachers, and I love even the references to the teachers. I was curious what McGonagall's facial expression was at this moment. I was wondering if like she was looking very frightened for the students, if she was looking reserved, if she was looking like she was contemplating. And they really only give you one or two lines of description on that. And I think that works better because I think it's kind of like in the early chapters where I'm trying to figure out who's in the scene and who's that and who's over there. I like the fact that they didn't overload us with descriptors or they didn't overload us with description because I really enjoyed trying to figure out what was happening because I think that made it more fun as a reading experience. But, you know, I think it was just very, very well done as a scene. I thought the attack was imaginative. I think it was something that was planned. Uh, very far in advance, and um, not to foreshadow uh, future chapters. But there are a lot of unanswered questions that we still have. I think even as the fic ends, um, you know, about the final battle and about who did what and so forth. And I just I thought that was just a very clever way to do it. And I found that reading this a uh, couple of years after the first time, I remembered virtually everything about um, about the battle. I just thought it, it was just a, it was just a great scene. And like you said, it showed you who Neville is. It showed you who Parvati is. Um, it showed you that Jenny you know, is a true Gryffindor and she was fearless. And, um, I thought it was actually interesting that it was Sinastra, Professor Sinastra, that, um, was the double agent. Did any, did either of you think reading that the first time that that was a role that you would expect Snape to have been in?
1: Uh, not necessarily. Um, Voldemort in the past and what we see of his planning abilities, doesn't like to keep all of his eggs in one basket. He's not going to tell one person all of his plans, because as soon as you tell one person all of your plans, that one person can turn against you, and and then they know exactly how to defeat you. And he is so, I mean, from the very first time that we've encountered Voldemort in these stories, he's so, I mean, hell-bent on... Eternal, uh, eternal life on living forever, that you know he wouldn't be that careless with something as important as his battle plan. Now, I mean, in this story, we don't really see what Snape's function is, but I can imagine that with someone who is playing the double agent, the spy, and is in the order, I can't imagine that he would also be the one in charge of corralling the students for a surprise attack. I think that would probably fall to someone else. And, I mean, and honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if Snape just learned about this planned attack right before it happened, because that's kind of what Voldemort's M.O. is. I mean, he keeps things close until it's time to launch the diabolical scheme and, and do the evil laugh, you know. And... uh and that's Dr. when he lets everybody knows what's going on.
0: <laughs> Is anyone picturing them all like all the muggle-borns getting marched out into the long and Dr. Evil's there with his cat?
1: Exactly. <laughs> you know. But, but I mean that's One the way shot. Voldemort operates. He yeah. doesn't tell he didn't tell anybody what's going on. And so that's why match. really Right. Exactly. And I mean that's why I wasn't really surprised that it was a different teacher. I mean, obviously, we know from Philosopher's Stone that if Voldemort can get to the teachers just as well as he can get to the students. Yeah. And um, and so it didn't surprise me that there was another teacher involved. It really didn't.
0: Well, did you think about, and Phil, I'll get to you in a second. You can answer this one, too, maybe. What did you think about Sinastra answering to Blaise Sabini? You could tell that he was in charge, you know, even though Sinatra was playing the double agent that she answered to him. I thought that was interesting as well. You wonder if she was threatened to go along with it or how that all worked in the background. And I like that. We actually don't know and get to think about it. Yeah. I think that um,
2: it's possible because uh, she ended up being uh, a double agent as well that Voldemort didn't fully trust her, didn't trust her enough to put her in charge of the entire thing. She was a player in it. She was a pawn, but she was not, the leader in that, and I really do think that's because Voldemort ultimately wasn't entirely convinced that she was on his side.
1: Or, you know, she might not have been high enough up in the food chain at that point. You know, we we don't know how long she's been playing this role. I mean, it's possible that you know, she just went under again using police link code okay. here, like a cop <laughs> or something. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's possible that she just went under in this group very recently, and so you know, it's possible that she didn't know everything there was to know about it. And it's, I mean, and that's another reason why Voldemort might not have left her in charge. I mean, and that could have been her orders, you know, maybe if she was, I mean, assuming, obviously, if she's a double agent. She's probably working for the order or for whatever Dumbledore's organization is at this time, you know obviously Dumbledore probably knew it was, or not Dumbledore, but the leaders probably knew it was going on. So it's possible that she was ordered to just stay on the, stay on the outskirts and, you know, keep her ears open and just find out what was going to happen and when.
0: One thing I think and just, I've said a few times already, so I won't go into it too deeply, but the way this section in this flashback is written is that we don't see everything. We don't know. Why, you know, students all turned against the other students. We can assume it's because things are so bleak that the Death Eaters are really pushing recruitment and they're really, you know, holding people in line and they're using fear as a weapon. And you can very easily imagine that extending to the teachers as well. It doesn't look good and Voldemort's on his way and unless you fall in line, we're going to march you outside and kill you too. And you can tell that that's something that you know, would be very effective. And what I also like is that we don't know what Voldemort's you know master plan is here. We do know that they're keeping all of the purebloods at the school. They're letting them go back in, and they're actually uh, you know the students are actually a little upset that they have to let. Um, I think it was when they thought they were going to have to let Neville, but no, was it Neville? Who was it? They had to let a pureblood in, and they made like a derogatory comment about the pureblood because maybe it was a Gryffindor or something. Uh,
2: actually, what they girl. ended up doing was. Well, there was that, and then there was the uh, obviously when the Weasleys came along, mm-hmm. they threw them to the left with the rest of the rubbish. Was the line, which I really liked, You know, instead of and even though they're purebloods, uh, they're trash as far as as, as the the uh, purebloods are concerned in in Voldemort's organization. So yeah,
0: because you know, and the last thing I'll say. No, I'm sorry, just to complete what I was going to say real fast, is you get the sense that he that Voldemort gave the order, to keep all the pure bloods, you know, except maybe the Weasleys or except the ones, you know, in the quote unquote order or whatever it's called here, and that he's gonna turn this into a pure blood school. And pure bloods get to go on, everyone else is getting wiped out. So you get a sense of what Voldemort's you know intentions are just from that one moment. But it's never fully explained to you, it's not really important. But the fact that you know something is going on there, even if you don't know what it is exactly, really adds a sense of realism to the scene, just as you know, you see the younger students crying as they're being led out to their deaths and you know, there's no teachers or no ultra students there to protect them. It just it like with the war orphans and like with so much else in the story, it's something I think it just adds a real deep sense of realism to what's going on. Uh yeah. And and I was I
2: was always amazed. Because you find out in the prologue to this story that they won. You know, you, you find right. out right at the very beginning that that you know, that Hermione is gonna survive and Harry is gonna make it, and Ginny is going to be there. But still when you read this, you get tense and you worry and you think, Oh God, I, I, I hope that, that somebody doesn't get killed here and you it's almost like you forget that in the first five minutes of reading this fig, you learn that they won the war, Baltimore was defeated. But uh, it is one of the things that I think makes it so effective is that they can still give you that sense of tension when the battles finally are described. You still are worried a little bit. It's like watching a movie that you've watched many times before and hoping it turns out the way that you want it to at the end.
1: (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) Or, you know, you start watching a television show after it's gone off the air and uh, (laughs) you know that all the characters make it to the series finale. But exactly. when you're watching it, you don't think about it like that. <laughs> yeah. No,
0: I think that's that's a really good analogy. And I think it's interesting, too, because they really mess with your heads. They, obviously, they tell you that things are very bad, very 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 bad, very bad, very bad in the prologue. And then everyone makes it. And then this is going to be a story about, you know, will Harry eat solid foods again? And will Ron, you know, kiss Hermione? And will, you know, Remus get the job? And will Sirius... Oh. You know, take a nap. It's going to be about mundane human things that you know never make it to you know the forefront of a of a series like Harry Potter, but they're really important and it's what holds the characters together and makes them real people in our eyes.
1: It can't be that mundane because nobody nobody would waste their time reading Harry Potter in the rather mundane year in the (laughs) wizarding world.
0: Chapter fifteen: Harry discovers (laughs) floss. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 like. chapter 17 Harry's got like you know the deodorant spray in one hand and the gel in the other hand what do you do I mean I don't know it, it's the story that well actually I have a friend who's reading Order of the Phoenix right now and she's about halfway through it and she's like does it pick up at all you know because it's a little boring right now. I'm like oh yeah don't worry about it yeah oh and she actually looks at me today she predicted at the end of Goblet of Fire I've, I've determined a student will not die in this fic I'm like okay she looks up at me today she's probably on page like 400-500 I, I don't know anything, but I can tell you, Sirius is going to live. I have a feeling. I'm like, okay, you, you go with that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Whatever you say. There you go. But um, You stick
1: with your theories. Well, it's actually theory. interesting,
0: too, because then when you go back to these sections of the story, you know, you get away from the love angles and from the cleanup and from all the mess, and you get back to, you know, here's, you know, talk about the road not traveled. Here's what could have happened if Harry... Lost in Voldemort 1. You almost want to right. read, like, you know, a fanfic within a fanfic and hear the fanfic what happened if, you know, they failed that night. It's just, it, it. you could tell this is where the freight train's heading. And this is how you think it's bad, you know, with Harry and Ginny not talking and, and, you know, Ron pissed that Hermione's going to Greece for the fall. You know, this is what could have happened. And you're like, oh my God, like, that would have been terrible. And it's just, it makes you really reevaluate everything that's happening now. It almost seems like it came from two different stories. You forget that you know the Hermione that comes back from Cortona is also the Hermione that had the wand put to her the back of her neck as she was led out of the Great Hall. It's just, you know, it just it seems like it's you're just dealing with two different characters here. It's just it's very startling how much they went through in such a brief period of time.
1: It feels like you're dealing with a two different worlds, not just two different characters.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. I, I completely agree with that.
2: One of the first things that struck me about this uh, chapter, well, about this section of this chapter, and once again, not to give anything away for future chapters, but uh, there's a lot of, a lot of foreshadowing in this chapter. Uh, a lot of things that become very important later on in the story take place, and in particular in this scene of this chapter, when, uh, Hermione comes out to the kitchen, uh, Remus, uh, is, I believe, still asleep, but Sirius is in the kitchen getting ready to, to start his day. And he asks Hermione about the spell that she's building, the weeping spell, and he's very interested in it. And there's a, there's a line in there, where it says Hermione wasn't sure she trusted his smile. And uh, it's really interesting to see that, because it, it, this character of Sirius is so well-developed in this story, but still there's so much you don't know about him. And you don't necessarily know what he's capable of. You don't necessarily always know what's, what's driving him at any one time. And so in reading this, you, you read these little things where Hermione's not entirely sure she trusts Sirius, and, and in particular, you know, when showing off this, this spell that she's building, uh, she, she's just a little bit sheepish about it, and, and it's, it shows. And, and I really liked—I really like that because that's, that's something that uh, that becomes important, I think, later on. I don't know. Did I give away too much? there, guys?
0: Oh no, that's fine. That's
1: completely no. Good. I I agree with the way she with the way she says it. I mean, because you know. We know that Sirius is not a bad person, but at the same time, he is desperate to do something about these dementors. And honestly, when you're dealing with a person possessed by something, it doesn't matter how good they are, they can be corrupted by it. I mean, look at Barty Crouch, Barty Crouch Sr., excuse me, he... He was not an evil person. He wanted to rid the world of dark wizards, but he became obsessed with it and turned into a real monster. And I mean, and that's a the legitimate fear. I think it's interesting. Especially with someone like Sirius, who we've already discussed probably has some, you know, manic issues. <laughs> Just a few. Yeah. I mean You don't <laughs> want to give somebody like this. you don't want to ever give someone like that a loaded gun, you know?
2: Right, exactly. Well, no, That's exactly right. And and, uh, and and you can sort of see that, that forming, because he asked at one point if he can make a copy of it, and she looks at him funny, and he says, no, no, it's okay, don't worry, I'm not going to do anything. It's me uh, thinks the serious thoughts protest too much in that regard.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, just looking at the character of Sirius, is that obviously he doesn't make it in the canon, and I think you have this tendency when you look back at people who have died, and I know I, I do this with people in my own life, you tend to remember the good things and maybe not remember kind of the craziness and you know some of the reality of the person. You kind of honor them with your memory. And I think most of the fans of Harry Potter remember Sirius as the devoted godfather who gave his life saving Harry and went to jail for 13 years you know, in a quest to avenge his dead friends and i think what you see in after the end is for people who are reading it post order of the phoenix it basically brings the character back to life and you see a character who is extremely responsible he's the head of the justice department he is prosecuting all of the death eaters and all of voldemort's henchmen and i think you kind of buy into what you remember of Canon that he's a very devoted, very good guy, and I'd like when they remind you and after the end, and granted they remind you of this you know as they wrote it when he wasn't dead yet but when you, when you when you read it again now, you see that Sirius is a guy that maybe even people who live with him don't completely trust, and he's a guy who is so. Fixated on destroying the Dementors, he can't even realize, you know, that people are telling him very important things about Harry or about Malfoy or so forth. I like the fact that not everyone in Sirius' life worships him. Nor should yeah. they. I think that you get the sense that Harry does that because he's gone, but when you see him and he... It's kind of like, you know, my dad passed away three years ago, and, you know, when I think back at them, I always think of the good times, but I think if he, you know, if I got on the time machine and went back in time and you know, sat with him for half an hour, I'd be getting annoyed at old well, things he does. It's just one of those things. I just think that's a really interesting uh, context for us the reader to be in, just looking back at Sirius, seeing that not everyone in the room trusts him, because I couldn't imagine, you know, someone in, you know, Deathly Hallows, of Sirius came back from the dead not instantly, you know, just feeling, you know, tremendous warmth for the guy. So I, I just wanted to point that out.
2: And there's there's foreshadowing here, not just in that regard, but there are there's some foreshadowing in terms of some other characters too, which I won't get into right now. But uh, um, if you're reading through it right now, it's it's uh, keep it keep it in mind because this this is an important (laughs) chapter later on.
0: (laughs) We know something you don't
2: (laughs) know. Rena laughs knowingly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
1: Well hey, you know what? I can do that. I've read a story already. That's true.
0: We actually, I should really advertise that more. We actually do a really good job of not spoiling this for people who are reading it the first time.
1: That is true. That is very true. We, we watch ourselves very, very carefully. (laughs) Lady
0: Chi sent him a voicemail and- for, like, the first episode that mentioned Ginny being a healer, and I refused to air it until, like, episode <laughs> six. Like, I think she was already guest hosting by the time, and I still refused to air the thing until we got to the appropriate chapters, like, episode seven or something that like that.
1: That is true. Uh,
0: and as the scene progresses, we see Hermione and Ginny, and Ginny is up at six o'clock in the morning uh, doing her homework, and... You get the sense, and I think it's a very realistic thing that a lot of people do. You see Ginny becoming almost bored with the fact that she's doing the Wolfsbane potion. And compare that to the first time she made it. You know, she was sweating, and she looked almost dead, and she collapsed, and then it worked well, and it was the scariest thing she ever did in her life. And her reputation and what everyone thought of her was hanging, you know, by a thread and just the other relief she felt that it worked well. And now you go forward a few months and she's kind of making it with one hand and doing her homework with the other while planning her day in her mind. It's just, it's something that she's almost forgotten about. And I like the fact that other characters are starting to realize that maybe Remus isn't just completely going overboard. Maybe Ginny really is spreading herself Hideously too thin, and maybe there will be consequences from that. I believe this is the point where there's even a reference, Remus says something to Jenny, and she seems surprised by it. He says, You were with me when we talked about this before she's forgetting simple things she's she's taking on far too much
2: yeah yeah yeah, absolutely she is yeah you're you're absolutely right she's she's got so much going on right now, and unfortunately, she feels so compelled to do all of it because and and a lot of that is related to the fact that I think she's a, because she 's a healer. They say, and she ex- explained this in earlier chapters, that they feel drawn to do this. And and so she's, she's allowing it because she still has some maturing to do. And she's allowing this, these tasks, these things that, that everybody, she feels everybody needs her to do. She's allowing them to take over for her. But you're right, at the same time some of these things that she's doing, she's been doing for a long time now. So it's just sort of becoming the daily routine. Like like when you drive back to work in the morning, you don't always fully pay attention to where you are because you pretty much know where work is and you know how to get there. And I think she's fallen into that, um, that trance in a lot of ways that people do when they do something repetitively.
0: Or it's like you want to get this job. If you get the job, you promise you'll stay every night till 11 o'clock, you know, getting all your work done. Just please give me the job. Please give me the job. And six months later, you have the job, and you're like, okay, this is kind of boring. Why did I ever want this job? And it's just you get used to it, and it doesn't become a challenge anymore. And just from Jenny's perspective, what do you give up? Do you leave your friend's parents in a coma? Do you not right. give, you know, Remus his Wolfsbane potion and make him go back to the you know the dirty floor of the apothecary? Do you, Do you let Harry you know, just, you know, Draw into himself and never come out. Do you let the dragons, you know, go completely mad and kill everybody and let the dimensions? I mean, realistically, where do you draw the line there? I mean, there, there isn't. It's not like she has to give up, you know, volleyball or basketball. I mean, these are real life situations with with lives in the line, and it's just it's a, it's an awful situation for her to be in. But I do like the fact that we're getting more layered references to the fact that you know something's brewing. There will be consequences here,
1: and I, and I love this because. She's so overextended, and we can see that she's so overextended, but now Remus is going to take her to the hospital? Yes. I mean, honestly, for somebody who has a natural ability like this, who's drawn to helping people and who's already overextended, let's take her to a hospital. Let's take her to a whole building full of sick people, because that's going to make her feel better. (laughs) I mean, honestly, it's... Uh.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like the parent... You know, Remus can't win here. When Remus is stern, we're pissed at him. And Remus is lax, we're pissed at him. But it's almost like the parent who says, you know, you're not getting your homework done. You're spending too much money. You're not saving enough. You're doing this wrong. You're not doing that now. Here's $100. Have a good weekend. It's just yeah, it's it's this is very, very, very bad. Keep doing exactly what you're doing. Yeah, I, I I can see that too. But it does all come back to the fact that there's nothing that Ginny can realistically get, give up, in her eyes at least. And there's no conversation Remus can have with Ginny where he could convince her to give up one of these things. He tries with the apothecary. She won't hear of it. She's not going to give up on the Grangers. She's certainly not giving up on Harry. She's not giving up on the Ministry. I mean, unless she gives up her spin class, I can't think of anything else she can really, you know, put on the job I think that Ginny is right at the very
2: beginning of stretching herself too thin. We were talking a little bit about that before, and I think that she she hasn't really gone fully overboard yet. She's starting to go a little bit on autopilot, but she's not exhausted. Yeah, are we okay?
0: Yep, yeah, yeah, we're fine. Um, yeah, she's pushing herself. She's forgetting little things, and you can you know she's got the the lines under her eyes, and she's probably no more exhausted and say, Sirius is. Although, if Sirius makes a mistake, he drops a file, or he, you know, or he performs poorly in the prosecution or defense. If Ginny fails, she screws up the Wolfsbane potion and kills Remus. Or she causes a dragon to, you know, I'm assuming just crash to the water. You know, Ginny is literally holding a lot of, of of marbles right now, she's holding a lot of fades in her hand, more so than I think any of the other characters. And when she gets tired, it's kind of like you know you, you don't want your heart surgeon to be you know kind of overextended. You know, it's it's kind of in the same. I think I think ballpark. So even little things to other people, I think for Ginny are a lot more uh, concerning.
2: No, I agree. Uh, but in in a way, you know, when when she accepted the fact that she was a healer, she took on. Yeah a lot of this responsibility and it's almost like a like a hippocratic oath in some ways where she has sworn basically to help people and she sees so many people around her that need so much help and she she it, it doesn't even enter her mind at the question she just realizes she has to help them.
1: Yeah. I think a part of it is that she's hiding it. And I think that Remus is I want to I don't want to say he's being naive or he's purposefully ignoring what she's going through. But I think he's trying to give her the benefit of the doubt and she's really hiding how completely exhausted she is. Because she keeps taking on more and she keeps taking on more and but if you'll notice, you know, she doesn't always tell everybody all of the stuff that she's doing. Oh, yeah. She kind of, you know, Hermione thinks she's doing these several things and Remus thinks she's doing these several things and while some of them might overlap, some of them aren't.
0: Harry, don't tell Remus I'm going to, you know, meet with Malfoy because he'll get upset. Yeah, it's the – it starts with the yeah. lying and it starts – or it's like you said before, you know, Remus takes her to a hospital. Okay, you're going to run into Neville. His parents are, you know, in pretty bad shape. Oh, maybe I can – you know, once I'm done with Hermione's parents, maybe I can go and, you know, take a look at the long bottoms, Or maybe I can, you know, just tell Remus I'm checking out Hermione's parents once a day, but really when he's, you know – recovering from his transformation. I can sneak back to the hospital and work all day and then do my studying at night. And but you can tell that she's playing everyone against the center, but there's a, there's a finite time that you can do that successfully before people catch wind or before you mess up.
1: Or before, yeah. you know, you die.
0: Yeah. <laughs> or you <laughs> kill everybody. Yeah. That could be a problem.
2: <laughs> but, but I think what Runa said actually is really true. She right now, she, she's a Southern person and we all know that. And Remus is giving her the benefit of the doubt. He's allowing her to make these decisions. He's advising her. As a matter of fact, there's a conversation. I don't know if it comes up in this chapter or the next, where he he advises her to to back off a little bit, to to take a, take on less. Um, but as of now, anyways, uh, he's still allowing her to make the decisions, and uh, it's all part of the maturation process, really.
0: Yeah. You know, and plus he knows that he has a limited hand as well. She's an adult. She doesn't need his permission to do anything, you know, other than stay at the Lodge, I assume. So I think he knows that he can't, you know, hardcore restrict her or else she's gone. So I think he knows that he, he has to be um ambassadorial in what he does, but he still does hold some, some, some sway because, you know, if, if he kicks her out, she's going, you know, either to the notch or she's going home to Molly and she doesn't want to go home to Molly, so she's gonna she's gonna find a way that, you know, keep Remus happy. And and I think she can she tries to play Remus, you know, pretty well and I think Remus gets that too. Remus gets that, you know, she can manipulate him, you know, in a in a friendly sort of way, and I think he gets that, you know, he he can't say no to her after a point, which I think is, is um it's it's pretty cool cuz you don't see these these two characters in a lot of other fics really develop the relationship they do here which is almost you know father daughter. I think he's more of a father to her in this fic than than even Arthur is.
1: Yeah. Do you know that I found a fic the other day that had Ginny and Remus sitting together? I think
0: Daniel's reading it right now. Is it the one where they have the um what do they call you you're, you're going to love this Phil. You're like the you're like the new guy in the block. There are there's an entire range of fics um about uh, marriage laws, and Danielle is reading one right now where um what is it it's the the pure bloods are dying out, so they need everyone to marry to you know create more wizards or something like that so um Sirius, I'm sorry um Snape and Hermione are forced to become married, and I think it's Jimmy and, and Remus are forced to become married as well to produce more I don't know, pure blood children I'm not, I'm not sure how that works with hermione, but I'm assuming that was I wasn't saw the that
1: one. but no, this wasn't this one. It was something different. But it was it was Ginny and Remus. But it wasn't like oh they're forced to be together. Blah blah blah. This was like by choice.
2: Real. I will say that sometimes the uh, it seems like people are just randomly picking two characters and going, I got it. We'll put these two together. You know, it's like it's like oh how about Ron and Dobby? We'll see how that works out. <laughs> I don't know if you know, you know you say that. I, I do hear so, some of these shifts, and I and I think, wow, that's. I mean, that's that's a little outside the realm. That's. I mean, one of the things I love about this story is that it it stayed as true yeah. as possible to the original intention of the characters.
0: Oh, you find yeah. some
1: variations. I mean, honestly, versions, yeah. my my take on all of it is, you know, if if you like <laughs> if you like these characters so enough to write a fan fiction about them, why the hell would you have them do something that is completely out of their character? Exactly. You know. (laughs) Exactly. And it 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 reminds me. I mean, like, I'm a big Live Journal nerd, but there's a a group on Live Journal, and it's called Do a Sex Machina, and it basically it does an MST3K style um, review of um, really, really, really bad fanfic. (laughs) And like, seriously, if if it's the commentary is great, and but, but the stories are so bad that they're funny. But, I mean, in one of them, Ron actually says, what the hell did we do to this author to make her hate us so much? Oh,
2: my God. Because, the their char-
1: you know, the characters were just awful, you know? I mean, yeah, I get it. Fan fiction is supposed to be about you expressing your own interests. But, honestly, if you like these characters so much – why are you messing with them like that? Yeah, But yeah, think, that's my take.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I think you sent me that right when we first met before we started doing the show, and I was like, okay. I, I, I checked out a few of them. I'm like, this is an interesting fic. It was like, I'll edit this up. There was the one where, like, Harry, you know... He was at the Dursley's for the summer, and he got a job in a whorehouse, I think, or something like that. And my thought was, why did not he go to the Weasleys? They love him there. They take him in, but, you know, whatever. I know. It's like if he needed some pocket yeah. money, doesn't he have, like, billions of, of, of galleons and grey But, you
1: know, whatever. Oh, oh, oh. You should read the one where Harry gets turned into a were-leopard.
0: <sighs> you told me. Were-leopard. About... There's an entire yeah. world out there, Phil, that you're just not – that you, you, you just really need to you stay away from. It's kind of scary when you get pulled <laughs> – yeah.
2: <laughs> there are times when I'm glad
0: I'm out of the Oh my god. He's like I'm hiding in the Philippines from the were leopards. But uh um... <laughs>
1: seriously, in, in the story, and like all of the Weasleys are also were leopards. And their Papa Kitty is Lucius Nalfoy. Ugh uh, <sighs> Yeah. Moving right along. Okay, so they are they're at Saint Mungo's and They're getting ready to try this spell Mm -hmm. with uh, Hermione's parents. And you can see that Ginny is in pain. They've they've done the spell, and it's releasing it. And, oh, my gosh, it is hurting her.
2: Yeah, and I have to start by saying that I really, really enjoyed the fact that this entire scene was told from Ginny's point of view and it was told from outside the room. And it's, once again, almost like we were talking about with Hermione's point of view during her dream, that you don't get to see everything. You don't get to hear everything. You only see and hear what Ginny sees and hears. And so there are moments when when she's, she looks in the room and she sees that Remus is saying something, and Hermione is, is laughing a little bit. And it's, it's really very powerful because the visuals... Of the, the spell are, are brilliant in this section. And they, they really bring that to life, that, that whole spell. Uh, I was able to picture it vividly. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a really brave choice to, to, rather than being in the room with, uh, uh, with Hermione, with Remus, uh, to, to have it from Ginny's perspective of, of a girl who's on her tiptoes looking in the window thinking, wow, I really hope this works. Um, but yeah, the, the, the fact that the spell was as powerful as it was and it actually started physically affecting her uh, was, was very interesting.
0: The descriptions were great, too. I was almost picturing, like, walking into an area that had been nuked or that there was a lot of radiation. You could sense, you know, just the static in the air and the forces at work that you can't see. And you can visualize through Jenny that the spell number one worked and number two, that it released something incredibly powerful that maybe Hermione and, and, you know, and Sirius can't see. Was it Hermione and serious or Hermione and Remus? It was Remus, right? Was yeah. Remus. Yeah. Um, that I always keep calling them by the different names. I don't know why I do that. And that, you know, Hermione and, and Remus can't see, but the Jimmy knows instantly is there. And you get the sense that, you know, she's overpowered by it. and, they ask her that, and you know they ask her, you know, did you sense anything? And she lies and says no, and that she's still keeping things from them, even though something amazing's happened. And even just the descriptions, like you know, Hermione's hair is you know stuck to her forehead, and she's sweating. And reading this through again, I was almost picturing the moment in the movie of um, Prisoner of Azkaban at the end when Harry successfully uh, fires um, the Expecto Patronum spell, and you see something magical, you know, no pun intended, happening, and one person standing back and watching. I was picturing Ginny just on the other side of a wall watching something amazing happen, you know, not taking part of it, but just being aware that something amazing is happening in that room.
1: Yeah. So we get to see what's happening, like you said, from Ginny's point of view, and we're watching the spell. And it's, it's interesting because we're also watching the first time that it actually worked because they've never tried it before. You know, this is this is it. This is how it happened. And I love how Jenny, you know, she all she can think about is, you know, how many people get to see this kind of power that are in this spell, you know? And and, and then she says, you know what, I hope no one ever has to see it again.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, who this kind of power is usually only reserved for fighting something that's so dark and so evil that, you know, if I never had to see it again, it would be a great, great thing. Well, it's kind of like so what you saw with first.
0: that. I'm sorry. It's kind of like what you saw with... um Delia and Hermione in earlier chapters, you know, Delia references right. the fact that Hermione's 17 years old and, like what she's seen Ginny's, you know, the same age and in her 17, 18 years, she's seen Expecto Sacrificum, she's seen Expecto Patronum, she's seen people undergo the Cruciatus Curse, she's seen so much dark stuff in her young life that she just hopes that people after her can just live normal lives and not have to worry about this crap that she herself has had to live through.
1: Yeah. And, of course, you know, we see that it, it works, the way Hermione thought it would, yeah. and it's I mean it's working, obviously it doesn't fix them. I mean there's too much damage, it's going to take longer than this one instance but but it is working, whatever Hermione attempted to do it it was successful, and we then we run into well, we don't run into neville Neville runs into the room and uh. He's talking and, and brings Jenny down to see his parents. And I love the contrast between the Lung Bottoms and the Grangers because, yeah. you know, as, as Jenny's saying, the, the Lung Bottoms aren't in pain anymore. It's, it's so far gone and it's so deep that they don't feel it anymore. You know, they're still up and, I mean, according to this story, they're still up and walking around and playing cards and things like that. But, you know, you you. It it kind of makes me, I guess it kind of makes me wonder how badly this must have been for the Grangers, because either that or the Longbottoms have been, you know, under for so long that they have, their minds have found a way to exclude that reality. But if not, then, you know, if, if that's not what it was, then... Oh my God! How powerful were these curses that hit the Grangers?
0: Yeah, um, and one thing on that, I was actually wondering the same thing myself because I just thought that was a very interesting way for them to um, to manifest the bottom's injuries. Uh, you know, speaking of Arabella and Virginia, you-, you wonder if it's something where you know, as orers they underwent some type of training to, in some way try and prepare them, you know, to be tortured or, you know, it's kind of like when you have people, you know, when military organizations are trained, what to do if you're ever captured. You wonder if the Longbottoms had any type of training that helped brace them for that versus, versus you know, the Grangers who are dentists. But um, I, just to comment on that too, I always thought that was a very kind of hokey way to do it. When I first read after the end, I thought, you know, the fact that they're, relatively normal, and they just, you know, relive the same day in, li- in their life over and over again, and they never advance, you know, beyond, you know, where they were when Neville was, you know, one or two years old. I, th- I thought that was somewhat hokey, especially after reading uh, Order of the Phoenix first. I thought Order of the Phoenix really nailed, you know, people in a debilitated uh, state versus, you know, people up, you know, playing cards. Reading it again, I completely uh, changed my mind on that. I think that Neville says... The way Neville describes his parents in this chapter and in the next really shows them to be people who almost have Alzheimer's. They have good days. They have bad days. On good days, they recognize him as, you know, just a nice guy in the hospital, not as Neville. But, you know, in, in some way they recognize him and they can, he can, you know, enjoy his parents and hear stories about him when he's a kid. Other days, they don't recognize each other. Other days, you know, they're they're completely out of it. I thought that was a very painful way to describe, you know, what happened to them. I thought that that when you think of Neville, he's had to live with us every single day. And I think it, through the long bombs, you got to really build on the character of Neville, and you got to see that when he went to Hogwarts, you know, Dumbledore reached out to him, and that he was someone who found strength in what his parents went through. And I think it really sets him up as a very Really necessary lifeline for Hermione because Neville knows exactly what Hermione's going through, and yeah. it really hasn't been touched on up until this point. Just how much you know, as much as Ron is there and Harry is there and Ginny is there and everyone is there, Neville has been going through this hell his entire life and Hermione has been going through it for two years and Neville gets it. Neville knows that you can never stop loving your parents. He knows that you can never give up on your parents, but he knows that you can come to peace with the fact that sometimes things won't just get better. And I think that's the bit yeah. of information that Hermione needed to get. I'm sorry. I was just very long winded there just to get through it. Um, jump in there guys.
1: No, it's okay. I, I mean, I honestly, I had not really thought about the Alzheimer's analogy. Before, but now that you say it, I mean, it, it, that's what it is. It fits, you know? Um, it's, you know, how do you sit by and watch someone you love and you know that they're never gonna know who you are really, you know? And, and, and it is something that Neville has dealt with every day of his life for the most part. You know, he can't remember a time when his parents weren't like this. And again, I have to give so much credit to ANZ for for doing this for Neville. Because, you know, like I said earlier, up to this point, Neville was kind of a joke. You know, he wasn't... No one gave him a whole lot of credit when it came to anything, really. And all of a sudden, in this story, we get to see... I mean, it's kind of like what happened earlier when we dealt with Percy Weasley. And you know, rather than take the easy way out that a lot of people do and just kill him off because he was on the wrong side or something. I mean, they really twisted it around and showed this character who wasn't very well liked as a hero. And and really that's what they've done here for Neville as well.
0: They made him a very strong character who gets to be the wise old man. You know, so to speak, he's the guy in the room who has the experience, who can let you know Hermione cry on his shoulder, and he can be the person that will help someone else through something. Whereas his entire life, he's been the guy that's had to go to Dumbledore, go the I'm assuming, you know, Professor Sprout, or you know, go to his grandmother for help. He gets to finally be a leader, yeah. which is something that you saw back in the final battle. He demonstrated he has the he has the stones to do it.
1: Yeah, and and I I really. I really like that they did that for him because, you know, obviously we know now that Neville had a larger role in all of this destiny garbage that they're dealing with. But, I mean, at that time they didn't. And, you know, they got it right on the head. They let this kid that most people overlooked, they let him be a hero. And it, you know, I think that that was a very... Smart move on their part. Yeah,
0: and Phil, I want to hear what you think on this too. I just want to throw this out there um before I forget it. I think it's very interesting that being a post um Gobble of the Fire fic, did you think it into the prophecy yet? that there is a realization within after the end that Harry is the one who will defeat Voldemort that Harry is the one that needs to be protected you know Hermione has to do the Fidelius charm on him at Hogwarts because he can't fall into Voldemort's hands he needs to make it i just thought that was interesting considering at this point in the story you know A&Z didn't have any reason to believe that like, obviously, you know, you're reading Harry Potter, you know he's big in this, but there's there's no plot reason for Harry to be the one who has to do it at the end. I just thought that was interesting that they've loaded these chapters with references to the fact that Harry was destined to be the one to do it. Uh,
2: the the interesting thing, and a thing that I really like about Mattel's interaction uh, with, with everybody, really, but especially with Ginny, is that uh, there's a statement in there that when he talks to his parents, uh, he's extremely confident in the way that he regards them. And I think it really goes to show, they, they say that when something catastrophic happens to you, that obviously things will never go back to normal, but that you find a new normal, that you find, uh, that things go back to as normal as they can be, and you, you create a, a new normal for yourself, and Neville really represents a character who has lived with this, uh, like Rena said, basically his entire life. And this is what's normal to him. And when you look at Hermione, she's still in that stage of saying, "No, this can't be normal. This can't be the way that my life is going to be. This that my parents' lives are going to be forever." And so she's still in that stage, which you can you can assume that Mel must have gone through at some point in his life in that stage of saying, "I'm not just going to sit back. There's there's got to be something I can do."
0: Yeah, I just, and it's a thing too where he, I think he knows that. The more you try and deny that this is what's happening, the more pain you put yourself through. So he just knows that you have to
1: let go. So we're taking after this, you know, I, I really got to say this chapter or the first half of, well, really this whole chapter is one of the most emotionally just like, hi, I'm emotions. Let me vomit all over you. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's really what I feel like when you read this chapter because there's so much heavy stuff going on. And, um, yeah. And so we turn over to the Weasley family. And, oh, thank you. And
0: thank you. I love. Really. That. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I'm I'm getting all excited. Can you see? I'm sitting up in my chair right now. Okay.
1: <laughs> really, it's difficult to think. I mean, even when the Weasleys have emotional moments, there are always little bits of just ridiculity or you know, Fred and George being Fred and George. So, you know, you know that even in a serious thing with the Weasleys, there's going to be some humor in it. So, I mean, reading through this, it was like, I'm finally, we're going to get out of the heavy stuff for a minute. <laughs> you know, we're going to have a respite. And so, you know, they are all, and and even here, you know, we see that Jenny's talking about how tired she is, how much she's got going on. But, you know, she doesn't want to stop. She has to keep working because Hermione looks so happy. She doesn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So she's going to get up, she's going to clean the house, she's going to study, she's going to go to the hospital, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, they're talking about all this stuff and reading the paper. And and then we get to our article by the lovely Hayley Florey. And all of her chins. (laughs) Not at all unlike the ugly naked guy poking stick that they use on Friends. I really wanted to find one and, and reach through my computer and poke this lady. So we get to see Jenny and obviously at this point in canon, we did not know that Ginny's name wasn't Virginia. Um, we get to see that, you know, they're insinuating that there is something a little untowards going on between Ginny and uh, Draco. And we can see the sparks begin to fly. And I just have yeah. to
0: say two things here. Number one, you can tell how old a fic is by what Ginny's first name is. If it's Virginia, old. If it's Genevra, new or, you know, re-edited. But that's usually a good barometer of when this fic was released. Um I just completely forgot my second book. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I got it back. I just have to say, I love how Ginny handles the situation. She, you know, she sees the article, yeah. and it's like Draco roping her on the front page of is Weekly. And Ginny, you know, she can tell her first thought is, this is going to be hard to explain to Harry. And then she, like, moves on from it. Because she knows it's complete garbage. And you have all of the Weasleys, you know, picture seven, you know, eight, nine, ten, twenty, however many of them there are. I can't even count. All of these older brothers, you know, with their rifles, ready to go kill the guy who's done this to their baby sister who doesn't know about sex, doesn't know about boys, doesn't know anything. She still plays with dolls. And... She looks at it, and she goes, huh, and just completely doesn't even acknowledge it.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, no, that, that was something that I noticed as well. And I, th- I think it's a combination of just her her general attitude and also uh, her, her, her healing, uh, her healer status. Uh, I think it's a reference in a lot of ways to, to her empathy, because in that little bit, not only does she handle it very coolly, but she... Actually expresses a little bit of concern about how Draco's depicted.
0: Yeah, I mean, to 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 be concerned about how Draco feels, I think definitely shows that she's really out there in terms of you know caring about everyone equally, or or at least treating everyone like they're human beings. Whereas I think a lot of other people would just completely you know toss these characters in the garbage. You know, a lot of the ones that we find to be irredeemable. But compare how Ginny's reacting to how Charlie's reacting, and. Charlie just completely drives me insane during these chapters because while the other characters kind of go off the handle and then pull themselves back, Charlie is just completely one-dimensionally irritating in my mind. Yes, we know that you're protective of Ginny. You don't need to tell us every four minutes. You don't need to react every three minutes, you know, with, like, spit coming out of your mouth that you were so furious that she's doing things you don't approve of. And I like the fact that Charlie gets right up in her face, and Ginny gets right back up in his, and tells him to knock it off. And you can picture him kind of, like, stammering and his mouth's opening and no words are coming out, because I don't think he can believe that Jenny just did that to him. And I think it's about time that Ginny smacked him back and told him to knock it off. And... I think it's definitely built for too many chapters, and just you know, from my standpoint, I wish you know she did it earlier. But I was glad to finally see her address the fact that she is n- number one an adult, number two someone who can take care of themselves, and number three, you know, this is a situation where she's Ginny, he's Draco Malfoy. What do you think happened? Do you? And it brings in the theme that you're going to see later. Do I really need to answer your question? Do you really need to ask me what you're asking me? Yeah. Agreed. Okay, I'm okay. Just completely putting raspberries in right there,
1: so. where
0: you guys are talking. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. There you There's a nice one for you. Okay, so we uh, <clears throat> will, <laughs> and I, I love how it's, it's Adam who's going to go, he's going to tattle.
2: <laughs> yeah, he gets her in trouble at the end there.
1: Because, you know, it has to be the little kid that goes to tattle. You know, by this stage in the game, all of the Weasley brothers know better than to run to mum about things. If they're concerned about it, they'll go talk to their dad. But they're not going to get their mother involved if they can help it. But instead, we have the little kid who's just like, oh, Jenny's in trouble! Well, the thing, too, is
0: it's Molly Weasley. And Molly Weasley always has had this character flaw where she believes anything she reads in the newspaper. She believes, she, she's called Hermione a scarlet woman because even though she knows Hermione, she read it in the paper. So it must be true. So of course she sees her daughter groping with Draco Malfoy. So of course, you know, she must be groping Draco Malfoy. I just, I thought that was a nice little bit of continuity there between, uh, between the, the fig and the canon.
2: Yeah. And even though, uh, you're right. None of the brothers tattled on her. (laughs) And George still loved the fact that she was getting in trouble (laughs) at the very end there. They they were very happy that, that it was happening. But you could see the, the two in their
0: eyes. Oh, and I love yeah. her reaction to it, too. I'm not the baby anymore. Of course I'm the baby. I mean, I, I love the fact that, you know, she could have gone off the handle about the article or she could have been depressed or she could have been so concerned about Harry. Her concern is, who is this kid and he has my spot?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's typical when you're the baby of the family, you know, and then all of a sudden there's a new person in your spot, <laughs> you know? Who the hell are it's you? like, hey. Right yeah, my
2: wife my wife and I are in the process of adopting a child. We have a five-year-old daughter, and we are very concerned about how she'll take not being the youngest anymore. So I think it's, a, it's the same kind of feeling there.
0: My girlfriend has a brother who's uh, is older than her, so when she was born, um, he looked at her, and I think it was right after she was born, so I think she was naked at the time. He looks at her, kind of looks her up and down, goes, Huh, she looked at his mother and said, You need to send her back. Why? She's missing a part. <laughs> So you never
1: know what kids are gonna do. Oh yeah, no kidding.
2: After that, Ginny goes off to work, and uh, obviously she now has to deal with the fallout from. Uh, she's dealt with her family now. And now she has to deal with the potential fallout from Draco, and ultimately from Harry, who I think she's she's probably a little more concerned about how Harry will take it. But she she initially thinks that Draco is just going to not talk about it at all. Because he was there as well and would understand that it was just garbage. But, uh, to her surprise, he does bring it up and, uh, actually accuses Jimmy of having a hand in it, which I think was very funny. And, and she, I love her reaction to him. Uh, she's saying my whole family was just as pleased as can be that this happened. You know, it was, it was a great reaction from her because she's at that stage where she's not going to take garbage from anybody, yeah. especially on Draco.
0: And she calls him on the fact yeah. that he is probably responsible for this because he's the one who's probably been paying these reporters to hang around to pick up all the bad news, you know, about, you know, the Weasley administration and how the PAP is in shambles. So he had these people in position to, you know, to, to take the photos, which, you know, screwed them in the end anyway. So this is really all his fault. And I like the fact that she throws it right back at him. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. They go up on the dragon and. Right. They go. <laughs> it's like are you for hire? And I love Jenny's reaction to it because honestly, if someone like that had said something like that to me, that's what I would have thought, you know, what?
0: well, since what? I already read about it oh, in the newspaper, neither. we might as well do it anyway. So,
1: Right. Exactly. But you find out that he's wanting to hire her as a healer. And, uh, She's going to have to go to Malfoy Manor, and she's, you know, she kind of, I'm not going to say that she jumps at the chance to do it, but she wants, but she feels like she needs to go, and so she's going to do this, and she knows that Harry is going to hurt her about it, you know, he's going to be upset, he's going to be angry, and he's not going to understand, and they're already having problems, and so it's just like, you know what? I would have said no, but uh, I guess she's a stronger person than I am.
2: So. Well, and I like how she regards him very businesslike. Whenever there's, uh, she knows him well enough to know that if she says the wrong thing, if she acts like she's too excited, then he'll say forget it. Uh, if she acts like she's not interested enough, he'll say forget it. And there's part of her that wants to do it, so she just looks at him and says all right, and just you know just regards him. It's 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 almost like it's a business transaction for her. And even though for her, I think there is more going on. She she it is compelled to do it. Uh, almost against her will, she's compelled to do it, but she, she knows how to treat Draco, uh, especially when, because he's, he's actually for the first time ever opening up to her in a, in a slight way, it's talking to her about something, uh, that has anything to do with anything other than the dragons or, or insulting her. So she doesn't want to blow this opportunity. So she just, it's like, it's like the soup Nazi thing where you walk in and say, I would like soup. You know, you can't you can't be overexcited. You can't be underexcited. You just have to treat it exactly
0: the right way, and I think that's what she did. And the yeah. other thing that I can think of because you get really frustrated hearing Ginny in this in this section of the chapter because as much as you know that everything she's doing, you know, and overextending herself is something that she has to do, you 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 know that she's agreeing to go to the Malfoy Manor, and you know she's doing it without discussing it with Harry first, and you know she's doing all of these things that are going to give her headaches later, and you just. Want it on some level, at least I do. You just kind of want to say, even though I agree with you, I want to just you know smack you back and say, look, you need to realize what you're doing here, you need to get control of the situation. On the other hand, she knows that Draco can be trusted here because she's a healer and she has a sense about these things. And while Harry thinks it's a trap, and while Ron doesn't trust him, Ginny knows that she can believe him in this instance, that he is not attempting to deceive her. And that gives her the ability to accept a situation she might otherwise turn down. But I don't get the impression that the other characters see it that way. So they, it's just a further example of them seeing her going off you know, the
1: handle a little bit. So then we get to the good part. We get to the Harry Jenny broke down.
2: Yeah. Now, before we get to that, I, I really loved uh, that moment. After Harry had looked at her and then disapparated, which when I read that, I just remember going, ouch. <laughs> you know, you know, it's well written when you get the Harry Potter pick and you start to hate Harry Potter. And um, when Ginny goes outside, before she apparates back, when she goes outside and sits on the rocks and looks out over the sea, that paragraph there was great. I just, it, it, what it talks about, uh, she, she rocked herself feeling the wind on her face, uh, remembering over and over again the the person this this person who who stole her heart and how much she loved him and how hard it was to love somebody like this because she knew that she she didn't have a choice she couldn't choose to stop caring about him she couldn't choose to stop loving him, and that's what made what he did hurt that much more so when she comes she she comes back for the for the throwdown uh it, it uh it it makes it that much more powerful for her.
0: I just want to jump in real fast and say that with so many of these scenes when you read from one character's perspective, you totally get what that character's thinking and from Harry's perspective, you know Ginny is doing too much she is. You know, on the front page of, you know, Witch Weekly, you know, with Draco Malfoy, she's talking to him, you know, in an intimate setting. He has his hands all over her in the dragon, and she's not talking to him about it, and, you know, she's not denying, you know, what's happening. So, from Harry's perspective, things don't look good. From Ginny's perspective, I performed Expecto Sacrificum and it worked, and I have been willing to die for him all along. Why doesn't he trust me at this point? So you can really see it from both characters' ends that each character I think has a valid claim on the truth here. And I think a lot of the issues, like we've been saying all along, are communication. But I like the fact that as she's you know standing there kind of rocking herself, saying, you know, I performed this sacrifice sacrificum. I've proved my love for him. He doesn't love me back. She believes it, and you know why. And I just thought that was a fabulous moment.
1: Uh, yeah. yeah. I really, I think that's one of the more fabulous, fabulous moments in this oh so, so fabulous story.
2: When she does get back to the house... It's, it's very interesting because Terry clearly wants to ask her that question, that big, big question he's, he's been wanting to ask her for a very long time, but he, being Harry Potter, being who he is, he doesn't start with that. And he sort of picks a fight with her about something that he knows isn't true. The, the whole first half of their argument when he's asking her, did this happen? You know, the holding up the magazine. And I love her reaction. She says, "You look at me and ask me that." I just think that's fantastic. Um, but he does summon the courage to at least stand up and look at her when it's not what he really wants to ask her. It's not what he really wants to talk about. But he doesn't know. Being you know, he's he kept his emotions bottled up inside for so long. He doesn't know how to breach the subject. He doesn't know how to talk about it. And so he starts by kind of picking a fight with her uh, about the magazine. And then it just, after that, it, it says, at it, one point in this argument that Dan bursts, and he lets everything out. And uh, that's when he gets to the all-important question, uh, whether or not she really does care for him, she really does, you know, feel, have feelings for him, or whether or not it was just the fact that she's a healer, and he's a boy who has had pain throughout his entire life, and she's wondering, or he's wondering, if she has any real Feelings for him, or if she's just drawn to him because
0: of his pain. And it's a question that she can't immediately answer as well. I think she's shocked that he asked it. I think that she's, you know, coming into this conversation, convincing herself that he doesn't love her back, and that this is one-sided love. But it's just such a gut-wrenching conversation. It's 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 the point. I think uh, I gave this book to Danielle a couple of years ago to read. I think this is the point where she almost started crying reading it. It's you feel so. Completely, terribly, for these characters that they've made it to this point, and where Ron and Hermione have found common ground and they found peace, these two just can't seem to get it together. And I just love the, you know, the the anger on Harry's part. She knows what I'm trying to say. Why is she making me do it? Like she's making him do this awful thing, and she wants him to acknowledge the question. She wants him to. To come out of his shell more and just to talk to her, and you you get where each character is coming from. This is just such you know, a gut wrenching conversation, and that is the final question: Does she love him because he's Harry, or does she love him because she's a healer?
1: Honest for him, it's a legitimate question because his entire life he's been surrounded by people who. You know, obviously, with the exception of the Weasleys, who's never treated him this way, but he's been surrounded by people who only want to be near him because he's the boy who lives. And, you know, this is the woman that he loves, and now he's afraid that it's all been a lie. He wants to know that he hasn't been just a project to her.
2: Exactly. And and he can't let it in. He, he You know, it's, it's classic abandonment syndrome. Everybody he ever cared about, well, not everybody, but... Uh, you know, he never he never had a family growing up uh, in terms of, of uh, a mother and a father. He's terrified that if he lets uh, he lets Ginny in, that she'll leave him. Something will happen. She'll die. She'll go away. And and it's 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 very classic, uh, you know, abandoned child syndrome. The uh, a child who who never has a real connection to anything doesn't know how to form those attachments. And so he doesn't know how to, to allow her to say, I love you, and how to say, I love you, too. And, and even though deep down, even at this stage, deep down, he knows he feels it. He just can't get to that point. He cannot uh, admit it, no matter how many times she will say it to him. And I, I, love, I love how brave she got in this, in this chapter, because she repeatedly just looked him square in the face and said, I love you. It's not, I I didn't fancy you. I didn't like you. It's not because I'm a healer. I love you. And I, and,
0: and, you
2: know, deal with it. Here it is. What what do you have to say to me now
0: that I've said it to you? And, One of the things that's so great and something you just reminded me of is that Harry is such an emotionally stunted person that he just can't communicate his emotions. But when you go back to um, earlier in the chapter where you have the flashback with Hermione and the Fidelius charm, Harry does not want to go into hiding like his father did because his father had to protect his wife and uh, his son. He wants to fight with his family. He's not going to be hidden. He's going to confront things head on. When you look at Expecto sacrificium, it's one of the points that was raised, I think it was back in like chapter six or something like that. Expectus sacrificium will work if Ginny loves Harry. That is required. Ginny must love Harry. And we know Ginny loves Harry. That is fact. But Harry doesn't have to love her back. So while we have this magical proof of Ginny's feelings that everybody knows about, there is no proof in Harry's mind that he loves them back. He probably can't even articulate it. He doesn't want to even have to talk about it. And when you look at these two characters, each of them is written in such a way that they are real people. And I was actually listening to this this part of the chapter on my iPod, and it just struck me how real these characters are. This is the high point right here of After the End, because these two people are just that, they're people. These aren't, you know, caricatures, these aren't one-dimensional expressions of... Love and angst and, you know, damage. These are just two real people who have a history together that we know about, that we've seen, that are just hitting an impasse. And I love the way that it's handled because I actually couldn't remember uh, rereading this, how this uh, section ended. And you could see the escalation building. Harry is just completely coming apart and he is throwing anything at Ginny he can and he knows it's wrong and he feels like he's weak for doing it, but it's all he knows how to do and it feels good to just express the rage he's feeling. And Ginny, in previous chapters you've seen completely fly apart. Like when, she, when her Hermione has the alcohol poisoning. She's you know so angry. She's making doors fly open. Ginny calms down, looks at Harry and says, I love you. You need to figure out how you feel. We're not going to be together until you do that. And she just walks upstairs. And she doesn't, you know, scream at him to get out of the house. She doesn't stomp away. She realizes, I know where I stand. You don't know where you are. This is your call, not mine. And she leaves. And she walks away from Harry. This is the person who she's just admitted she will love until the day she dies. And she walks away from him because that's the only way she could potentially ever keep him. I just thought that was a really strong bit of growth for Jenny. It was actually something I didn't expect. I expected, you know... Pray the storm out of the room. I couldn't remember how that ended, but I just thought that was great.
1: It is. It's a a really good way to, I guess, kind of indicate the level of maturity that these kids have been forced to achieve. And it's not there. And you want for them to not have to be this way. But, you know, from all that they've been through, the fact that they're even able to be rational and to be, you know, quote-unquote grown-ups about anything to me is just amazing. And and this chapter specifically is a very good example of them having to having to be the grown-ups and having to take on a role that, you know, they otherwise never would have had to do. Yeah.
2: No, I I I've always I've always loved this chapter, and, and the way that it ends, I think you're absolutely right. The, the the power of her walking away quietly is so much better than it would have been if there had been a, a screaming and, and I never want to see you again. And and it also would have been somewhat cliched. I think if it, 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 it could have turned into a, a re, if it had ended like a real fight, you know, if it ended with people angry at each other and slamming doors, and instead her just calmly and rationally. Walking out. And, and it's, it's interesting because at the very end there, Harry can hear her in her room and he hears something that sounds like he, well, he can tell he hears her crying in her room. So he knows
0: she like falls that, to the floor, right? She like collapses. Yeah. Thinking.
2: She falls. well, she falls to her bed. He hears the bed spring and he didn't hear, hears her crying. And at that moment is when Rios and Sirius come back and he just gets out as quickly as he can. So the, the power of that was really incredible. I am not ashamed to say. That I had tears in my eyes. Not only the first time I read it, but the second time too. It's a, it's a very emotional, Aww. very powerful. Uh, I have to tell uh, you. But what? it's a
0: very emotional chapter. I'm listening to this at work and I actually had to take like a few minutes of like a break and just sit at my desk and listen because usually I can, if I'm doing mundane tasks, I can concentrate on both. I was just riveted by this and people walked up to me to ask me questions. So I'm like, I'm on a break. You don't understand. Titty <laughs> and Harry are at this very emotional moment and I can't stop. Yeah. <laughs> Rinna's got people in the emergency room bleeding out. She's like, you don't understand. They've been trying to get together for 12 years or whatever. It's (laughs) been seven years. (laughs) I
1: know. I would never let anyone bleed out. Jeez. All right, well. I'm not that mean.
0: I know you're not. Moving on, we're going to go to Chapter 36, which is entitled um, Hard Truths, which will be our final chapter that we're going to discuss uh, this evening. Uh, Phil, I know you um, had some thoughts on this. Why don't you take it away?
2: Sure, the, the chapter opens with Ginny working on Hermione's parents again, and it's pretty well established that by this point she's been doing it for quite some time, and it is now, in difference to what we were talking about earlier, now is where it's starting to put a strain on uh, on Ginny. Her, her relationship with Remus is, is strained a little bit, uh, her studies are being affected, and uh, this is the first time that Remus is actually adamantly insisting that she give up some of her activities, that she don't don't spend as much doesn't spend as much time uh, with the Grangers, that she doesn't spend uh, as much time uh, working with dragons, and she still this is where her immaturity I think comes into play. She just refuses to do it. She has too many people that she feels are depending on her. So uh, when when she's working on the Grangers, even Hermione with her parents in the bed. And, and her sole mission in life, it seems, is to get them back in any way that she can. Even she turns to Ginny and says, you shouldn't be doing this right now. It's your birthday. Oh, so, you know, and, and, and I think that's a pretty telling statement because when mm-hmm. Hermione is telling you, don't help my parents anymore, then it's gotta be pretty evident that, that you're stretching yourself pretty thin.
0: Yeah. And she's taking And up She also words. does it
2: because she's, she also does it because she's her friend and she wants, she, she feels bad about it. She doesn't want her working on her birthday. But, uh, Denise just, uh, doesn't want to stop. And, and when Hermione tries to talk a little bit about Harry, uh, she actually tries twice in this, in this sequence. And, uh, Ginny lets Hermione know in, know in certain terms, no, we are not going to talk about that. Because, as far as she's concerned, it's between her and Harry. And really, it's, it's with Harry. Uh, nobody know, nobody questions how she feels. So it's really with Harry, and when, when he makes whatever decision he makes, then maybe she'll be more open to talking about it. But in the meantime, she does not want to talk about it at all.
0: Yeah, and I love that too. It's that you know Hermione, for being the logical, bookworm person, is really in the end she's she's an eighteen-year-old girl, and she wants to gossip, and she wants to know what's up with Harry and Ginny, and what the fight was about, and she hates being out of the loop. I just thought that was a really cute moment. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to point out is this is the chapter where we realized that the Grangers, I'm sorry, this is the chapter where we realize that Mr. Granger is blind. He stepped, you know, in front of his wife and took the brunt of the Cruciatus curse, uh, when the Death Eaters attacked and he was blinded because he received, um, more of the damage. I thought it was interesting, and, and maybe this is a situation where you just have to be involved in it and rent out just from a medical background. Maybe you can, um, Share your thoughts on this. Given the fact that she thought that her parents were comatose permanently and she thought she would never, ever get them back, I thought that her reaction to her dad being blinded was a little overplayed. I think that the way that Ginny was going on about it, I almost expected her to say, your father will never wake up. I expected her to say that your mother, you know, there's hope, but your father is too badly gone. It seemed like she was really building it up into this awful, awful, awful thing that Hermione was expecting, and it turned out to be, oh, your father's blind. Well, you know what? If he can wake up, you know, I think Hermione would definitely live with that. But I, I don't know. What do you think on that? Did you think that was?
1: Honestly, this is what I thought. Um, it's we, we've talked before about you know trauma, people who have experienced a trauma, and how they don't always behave rationally we've seen people you know patients come in whose bodies are completely devastated and we get a pulse back and the race to emergency surgery and they are going to survive they're going to make it but they're going to lose a limb and that is devastating to the family even though yes their family member is going to live even though it's going to be okay you know, when you're in a traumatic situation, you jump on the little things like that. Yeah. You know, you, you are looking to connect with anything that they can give you a solid answer. And this is Ginny, and she has a solid answer. Her father is blind. And, you know, yes, on the grand scale of things, no, it's not a big deal that her father is blind. But when you're in that situation and you have to focus on something like that, it's, it can be devastating. It really can be. I think the and only I think reason that's I, why she reacts this way, Yeah, I think the only because, reason
0: I, I'm sorry. I think the only reason I, I had reacted to that was, it wasn't a situation where she finds out her parents are attacked and then finds out that her father might be all right, but is going to be blinded. I think why I had that reaction was that she's lived with this for two years thinking her father will never wake up. And now she's faced with the prospect that although he may wake up, he'll be blinded. And I, and I get exactly what you're saying. people don't respond logically you know to emotional events. I would think that you know after i you would almost see it as you know either having him you know with vision but never waking up or blinded and waking up. obviously you would want him to wake up and I thought that I just the way I interpreted it was that. They were building up to this awful, awful, awful news and it was that he was blinded. I just thought that, you know, given the fact that she hasn't talked to him in two years, if he could wake up, you know, the blinded, you know, his blindness wouldn't hit her like it Yeah, it, it, did, it
1: seems like a secondary thing, you know. You'd just be so excited that he's back that you wouldn't care if he could see or not. Right. But – you know people in these situations they they don't respond logically they'll jump on something that seems so completely insignificant for no, for no other reason than the fact that for so long they've had nothing to go on and here all of a sudden they think everything's going to be okay but it's not
2: yeah.
1: and it yeah. just it it brings back the fact that this person that you love and this person that you care about is is hurt and it's something that, you know, once someone starts making a recovery, it's easy to kind of not, I don't want to say overlook their injury, but it's easy to kind of gloss over it and to think, oh, well, it's not a big deal. But, you know, when they have to tell you, okay, this person isn't going to make a full recovery, it just makes the fact that something bad happened to someone you love. It makes them, right. it makes, it makes the fact that something bad has happened to a person you love a lot more real.
0: Yeah. And I guess if you look at the two, she feels so guilty for what happened that you now this is something that you can quantify because of me, my father is blind. I'm sure that she's
2: also deep down, She even up to this moment, she's probably got these feelings in her, even though she knows they're not logical of, maybe we can get them all the way back. Maybe it can be like it was when I was a child. And this is the first time that she's really told, definitively told, well, even if we get them back, and there's no guarantee of that, even if it happens, this is going to be the case. And so I think that can be devastating right. because you, you hate to admit it to yourself, but when, when somebody that you care about is in is in that state, you you want to believe with every fiber of your being, we can get them all the way back, right? They'll, they'll walk again. They'll talk again. Everything will be like it was. And when you find out definitively that it's not, uh, that yeah, that can be devastating. It, it can be very upsetting. Even, even though you have the prospect of getting them
0: back. No, that's, a, no, that's a really right. good point. I'm reversing my opinion on that one. You see how that works? You guys talk me back. <laughs> Teamwork.
2: Score one for
0: Ren and Arabella, <laughs> job well done. I'm very impressed with the quality of Ren in, in Chapter 36. Okay, uh, so okay. moving on to uh, The Notch with Hermione and Harry. And then Jen's going to kill herself for not being here right now, but this is a great Harry Hermione scene and I love the fact that it brings up the fact that it's Ron and Harry and even though they're the trio, Harry doesn't really have a very um, personal relationship with just Hermione. I think a lot of that is more in fanfic than in the canon. In the canon, I think the one reference we get is that, you know...
1: Did you just say in the canyon?
0: I said the canon. <laughs> in um, the ca- <laughs> Yes. In the canyon,
1: you don't like, see the two of them in the
0: canyon very often. That is correct.
1: Okay. It's getting late.
0: It's getting late. We're silly. Um, yeah, in the canon, you get the reference to the fact that, uh, Hermione, you know, isn't the person you want to be your best friend because you end up in the library a lot. So you don't see these two characters very much, although we did have the great scene back in the Snouts Fair, uh, before she went to Cortona where Harry essentially gave his blessing and was very understanding. And now you have Harry extremely withdrawn into himself, much more so than he's been, uh, through most of the fic. And Hermione has decided, I'm going to fix him and I'm going to do it being myself. I'm going to get up next to him and I'm going to annoy him until he lets me in. And then I'm going to stay there until I fix this because I am Hermione and this is how I deal with the world. Right. <laughs> and I, I really, I just want to say, just uh, general. Um, thoughts on the scene. I love that Harry is withdrawn. He is on the couch. Harry essentially brushes Hermione off and she gets right back in his face and she gets right in the face of the person who's being very subdued and says, Don't you dare try that on me. I've been with you, you know, for years. I know everything that's happened. I am your friend. You will not dismiss me like that. And it kind of snaps him out of it a little bit. And through the scene, you're able to see that, you know, Harry is trying with Ginny. He doesn't know what to do, and he has never dealt with anything like this in his life. He's defeated Dark Lords, yes, but he's never handled women well. And I just I really enjoy this scene so much. You know, he admits to Hermione that they're on a break. Whose idea was that? Oh, it was Ginny's. Oh, well, why did she mm-hmm. want to go on a break? Oh, no reason. Just felt like going on a break from Harry Potter. I mean, <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't name a reason, and, and, and Hermione's like, well, this doesn't sound very doesn't sound very accurate. You know, were you guys having any problems? And then, of course, Harry just, you know, seals himself off again. And I, I really enjoyed the scene. I really enjoy every moment from the point where he pulls out the purple package.
2: I, I enjoyed the, the sequence because you're right. It does show that Harry is trying. He wants to he wants to extend an olive branch to her in some way. And he gets the hat, of course. And that's just turns out to be an absolutely ridiculous gift. Uh, it takes Hermione very little time to talk him out of it because you know that he really didn't want to give that to her anyways. But then, then we get to the letter, which is in my mind is even funnier than the hat, <laughs> uh, especially the, the way that he signed it. He signs it "Love, Sincerely Yours, Harry." So it's like he couldn't even decide what to put in this one sentence letter. So he just put that, that he everything. was writing to her.
0: You know, he signed it every way he possibly could think of just to cover all the bases. <laughs> Which like I actually thought that was interesting. Yours, yeah, because he actually was writing some pretty good letters to Ginny when he was up on Norbert in earlier chapters. I actually thought he came, he kind of downgraded a little bit. I thought he actually had it, but maybe he was more comfortable then. But yeah, that letter was a complete disaster. I think it had like four words in it. And Yeah, it so said basically, sorry, Sorry, I said some bad stuff. I'm sorry no, I fine. did what I did, I'll never do it again. No, he didn't even say <laughs> that. He just said, sorry, <laughs> and that was it, you know. Well, that's I the mean, thing. It was I yeah, he couldn't even tell her what he did. But, you know, he's sorry for yeah. the thing he did that, that ruined things. I Just such classic yeah. Harry. And I love the fact that she forces him to rewrite it. And he doesn't know what to put. And finally, he reworks everything. And, you know, he gives her the letter and she reads the letter. And he got all of his feelings out. And it's from Harry, I think it's as good as we're going to get. And she's very pleased with herself. And then he's like, well, I'm not going to give it to her. I can't give her that. She tells him that you had that he has to
2: give it to to her, and uh,
0: unfortunately, being
2: being the hairy that he is, uh, uh, he he does disappoint and uh, doesn't doesn't end up giving it to her uh, at the party after about which is which is a shame. But uh, you know, it's, it's what we've come, kind of come to expect from him. When, when things are going well, he can write. You're, you're right, you right. He can write decent letters. But when things are bad, he uh, he doesn't know where to go. Doesn't know what to do, and it, it shows.
0: And I walked away from the scene with two different realizations. Realization number one is that Harry admits to Hermione, "Don't you ever think that I don't value your friendship?" And in stories where you kind of, unless they're sleeping together, where you kind of don't see the Harry Hermione friendship very much because it's really overpowered by the Ron Harry friendship or you know Hermione and Ron or Harry and Jenny, the the Hermione Harry friendship really comes back in this chapter, and I thought that was very important for a and Z to get across, and I commend them for that. Sorry, I thought they bookended that scene really well, with the initial comment from
2: Hermione saying, don't think I don't care just as much about you as I do Ron. And then at the end of the scene, Harry says, hey, uh, yes, you mean just as much to me as Ron does. Don't forget that. So it
0: bookended it very nicely. I thought it did, too, and I like the fact that at the end of it that Hermione, who can be very non-people person-like in her in her interactions with people. She can she doesn't get people very well sometimes. She even admits to herself, maybe I did screw this up. Maybe if he had just given her the freaking hat, things would have worked out better. Because now Jimmy's pissed off that he didn't even acknowledge her at all. I think even if he gave the stupid hat, at least she would have got on some level that he's at least trying, and she didn't even get that. So maybe Hermione admits that it, that it didn't work.
1: I think, I mean, I like this dynamic, the dynamic between the two of them, I really do. And I I love how, you know, I read this and I'm reminded of how it feels when I talk to my brother, just because he's a big fat phone head sometimes. And when I talk to him, it's like, you know, you got to beat your head against the brick wall for 15 minutes before you get anything out of him. And I really like this dynamic. And I mean, I'm I'm glad that they have this conversation. I think that it will help. It can't get any worse.
0: Oh, I'm sure it probably could, but. Not yet. <laughs>
1: well,
0: I'm sure it could. So. Just give it time. Just give it time. We're not done yet. There's still, there's still time for them to screw this up. Just give it time. So then we move to, I believe we go to the borough next with Bill and Fleur.
1: So we go to the borough next, and we see that Bill is employing all of his curse mojo, trying to break down the wards that Fleur has put up, and nothing is happening. And... They're at the borough, and they're going to have lunch. And, you know, Bill is no... You know, Fleur kind of hangs back, and, you know, they get to the almost kissy-kissy stuff, and then they go back to the house. And uh, and then we get into the discussion about Copperat, and we finally get to see kind of what's going on with it, you know, where they are in the project. You know, they have a solid, you know, they have something solid, which is so exciting, and uh, and then they get into the point that I think is just brilliant with the using the elves inside of Culparat as you know the staff. <laughs>
0: It is a great um, idea, and I wish I could have brought it up, you know, back in the wedding chapter. But that was the point where Jen was actually jump kicking house elves because Dobby interrupted the Harry Ginny kiss. So I, I, I didn't get to comment on it then. But I really do think that is very interesting. I just love the fact that you know they've been kicking these poor house elves around for years. Probably most of the criminals in Calparat, and now the house elves are their, are their masters. The right. They're
1: talking more about the MLES and what they're going to do about at the band and Colkrat and all those things and then all of a sudden Fleur yeah. absolutely burst into tears and it's about Gabrielle because they um you know we already know that her sister was one of the kids at Mont and uh they find
0: her and wand. now
1: they they've discovered a grave and they can't they can't tell which kids are which but they've discovered this grave and and so we get to see, you know, this is the reverse of the first scene that we saw with Bill and Slur. This time, she is the one who needs that contact, and Bill says, no, you know, I'm not going to distract you, because you didn't distract me. You made it all better, and then Fleur is able to really talk about her sister and tell her things about them, and and I really love how they compare this dynamic to um, the Weasleys with Percy, you know, because... It's the same thing. This is a family that has lost a member. It doesn't matter the situation. These are people who are fighting for good, and they lost people that they love. And that grief is is very uniting. And it's something that they have in common. And then we get into all the kissy-kissy stuff.
0: I love how he brings Fleur up to his bedroom, and you can imagine like on the twin bed he had when he was six. I just thought thought that was cute on one level and kind of... Mama's boyish on the other, but I did like the fact that he had no brother to his bedroom. I, I, oh,
2: and I loved that uh, during that sequence uh, when they were in his room. Well, oh, and really, it started uh, on, the fir- uh, on the when uh, Flora was sitting in Mister. Weasley's chair when she initially broke down. Is that she wasn't perfect anymore? Definite point of pointing that out. She she was imperfect. At one point, she has tissues stuck to her face. She. Her face is, is smeared with tears, and and her hair, uh, even even though it still seems perfect in some ways, is messed up. And Bill is is surprised to find out that that's who, how he knows, deep down knows that he truly does love her. Because it's not the fact that she's a villa. it's not any kind of enchantment that's happening to him. It's not just the memory of the kiss that they shared all that time ago. It's that for the and, and this is really the first time, including. Canon that Fleur is depicted as a real person. You know, it, it's just it's so real to have that happen, to have her break down, and sob, and and be comforted, and and not look perfect. And and it describes there's a, a description in there where um, it, he was talking about, or, or in in Bill's mind, you could see her and and look at her face, and and there were imperfections there, and it was really great because it was you know just part love part desire probably a little bit of the vila in there as well but he knew at that point that that he really did care for her and the way that you know we talked earlier about how good a and z are at last lines the last line of this sequence i think is just just fantastic i love the last line uh after they've uh gone back to uh first class and they're they they talk and they share memories and they look at pictures and they do all those things and that uh he says, it says he wasn't sure if he'd asked her to sit with him forever or if it had been she who had asked him. He only knew that the exchange had been made for good. And it just ah, chills went
0: down my spine when I read that. That was just great. Yeah, that's it. And I I think that, too, I think anyone who is a fan of After the End is going to have, you know, spasms when they read about Bill and Fleur's wedding, you know, and. In Deathly Hallows, because you're gonna, I think we're both gonna be like, who are you and what have you done with after the end, Bill and Fleur? But I just think <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just such a great character moment. and I love how that's one of the themes that you see throughout this chapter and throughout this fic. How do you prove to someone that you love them? How do you prove that, that what Fleur feels is really love and what Bill feels is really love and it has nothing to do with the fact that she's a Vila? How do you prove if you're Harry that you love Ginny, you don't have to? And if you're Ginny, how do you prove to Harry that you love him? Maybe you can't. Maybe it's something you just has to get. I just love how that's a consistent theme that you see reappear over and over again. How do you prove to someone that you love? Them? How do you prove to someone that you miss them? How do you prove faith? You can't do it. It's a personal thing and it's like religion. It's something that you either feel you don't and you can't explain it to someone else because it's different for everyone else. And I love the fact that even in the universe where you have Mirrors of Erised and you have Boggarts and you have Dementors and you have all these magical literary devices these characters are human beings who have the same problems that you or i do and it's just it's not something magic can fix and i think that's i think that's just really great and then we go to um malfoy manor which jenny has gone to without telling anyone where she is which is a ridiculous thing and this is the place where her brother was tortured by uh, bellatrix lestrange and her husband this is where so much suffering occurred and this is the nexus of so much evil that she has gone here without even telling anyone that she would be here. She has gone here completely defenseless because she trusts Draco based on her empathic abilities. And I love the reaction to Ginny when she steps into this place. There's you know the poor, you know, withering little house elf who is free but doesn't care because she's too afraid. And there is that one great line, you know, where Ginny looks up at this huge, very sterile almost terribly, you know, rich-looking, you know, ghoulish house and thinks this is what a home is like when it's not loved or something to that effect. This is something, you know, if, you know, the borough is, you know, made of scrap metal, practically, and it is a home based on the love that Molly and the children in Arthur feel. And this is, you know, a house that, I think she even references the entire borough could fit into the foyer, but it doesn't matter because this place is just so disgusting to her. And
2: it's a museum.
0: It's a museum to to times that Ginny would rather forget about even too. It's just it's just an awful, awful, terrible place. And yeah. she meets uh, with Draco, and even the room that she's in just disgusts her, and she feels weak even being there because this is the room that the diary was in, and the diary. You know we you know, we know that she's had she's had consistent nightmares since her first year and this is just something that she didn't expect and can't handle and she wants to leave the room but she doesn't want to appear unprofessional she doesn't want to appear weak because now she's afraid and she holds herself together and she begins to heal Malfoy and right in the beginning she realizes something that we as the reader haven't seen yet but it doesn't come as a tremendous surprise, he has a glamour charm on and when he removes it, you see the true Draco. You see the person who's a human being, who hates the fact that he's a human being. You see someone who hasn't slept, you know, which is why he needs a healer. You see someone who the life has just been drained out of him. He has nothing left except the petty arguments of Harry and Ron, and he has nothing left but the trivial matters of a Hogwarts schoolboy, and you just see how much this war has affected him, just like everybody else, just like everybody on Jenny's side of the war this war has completely gutted him as a person, and that is what he is hiding from the world.
1: Jenny starts actually working on Malfoy, which is how she discovers that he wears a glamour, because she can feel it. And she starts working, and she can tell that, you know, he's fatigued, and he's grief-stricken, and he's damaged. But she starts to work with him, and all of a sudden, he's, he's pushing her away. No, no, you can't. I, I want to stop. We can't do this. This isn't, this isn't going to happen. You've got to stop
2: are a lot of stories in where he's either the devil or he's turned and transformed into an angel. And this, this story, I think, really depicts him very well. He's, he's, you're right. He's tortured. He's gone too far to go back. He can't go back. He's not redeemable anymore. And he knows it as much as anybody that's around him knows it. And, uh, he, it really shows how tortured he is. The fact that he would allow Jenny into the house to begin with and then allow her to work on him at all uh, really shows how tortured he is and how he wants peace desperately. But he knows that in, in many ways it's too late for him. It's He's gone too far. Here he is. He's, what, 18, 19 years old. And his whole life is, is going to be this. And he knows it. And all he wants to do is, is sleep a little bit. Uh, get rid of nightmares, find some peace. And, and I really like the depiction here because he's not—he's not an angel. He's not a good person. Even though Ginny makes that comment at, at one point during the session uh, about you're—you're you're not what you think you are. Uh, he doesn't even really fully believe that. He—he he has come to believe that he is all these things, I think. And would just love to just run away from the world. And it's—it's it's a tortured. Uh, uh, presence and you can't help as much as as much as you learn to hate Draco uh, for all the things that he had a hand in during the course of this story. You cannot help but feel very very sorry for him in this scene, and and pretty much for me, after reading this and then continuing on and reading the rest of the story, I felt that way about him. I, I didn't hate him anymore. I I pitied him above all else.
0: Yeah, it's Jenny who hasn't hated anyone. Jenny, you know, back a few chapters even found it you know, difficult to hate, you know, Lucius for what he tried to do to her and her father and the Grangers. You know, this is someone who really doesn't hate anybody, and this is someone who sees the humanity in everybody. And she sees Draco as more human than she ever thought possible. And she pities him so much and that disgusts him. And if you look at this, he's going to a Weasley for help. That is how low he is coming. He has a defenseless Weasley in his house now and he lets her go because what else is he going to do? He has nothing left. You know, the war is over. He lost. He can't keep fighting it. And you're right. This isn't the Draco who's been redeemed. This isn't the maniacal, you know, must, must, mustache-twirling Draco. This is just a broken guy like everybody else, but as everyone else deals with it, everyone else leaves their pain out in the open for everyone to see and tries to get past it, Draco puts a glamour charm on. He's the only one that cares what people think of him in this story. Which about the Keeping appearances, which, you know, isn't surprising, but I think that, you know, it puts an entire new spin on why is he working as a dragon rider, what's up with that ring, you know, first of all, which Ginny can't talk about because she signed the um the confidentiality agreement, and, you know, even, you know, Ginny leaves Malfoy Manor swearing that she will never go back there again, and maybe there are some things which aren't worth it you know, maybe there are some people that you can't fix, but she will always remember the fact that Draco Malfoy is a human being, and that is something that, you know, Ron, in, you know, in previous chapters, discovers that Draco is somehow involved in, um, in, you know, dark affairs. Draco may be tried for, you know, war crimes, essentially. And I love even in this chapter, you know, Jenny's reaction, well, if you didn't tell me, you know, what it was, it couldn't be that important. But, um, you know, this is, Jenny has seen who Draco really is. He's allowed her to see that. He didn't kick her out when he realized she saw the glamour. I think he expected her to see the glamour. He brought her there knowing that she would see exactly who he is, and that, like you said, is just a testament to how far he's fallen. Yeah, and it's yeah. a, it's, it's a, it's sad. Above
2: all else, this was a very sad moment for me in reading it. Is, is that you? You, it kind of makes you change your view of somebody, somebody that you even once again, even in, in canon. You learn to hate this guy because he's pretty much just kind of depicted as, with, with little exception, pretty much pure evil. And then you see that that he didn't have a choice in a lot of this. You know, his his father was pulling his reins all these years, and now his father's gone, and there's there's nothing left but but the image of of what he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be rich and powerful and 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 uh, better than everybody else. He's
0: he, to the world that's what he's projecting. Ray, what do you think? You're usually on the um, hang Draco Malpway and Ask Questions, Lay their bandwagon.
1: I am. And um, this is one of the situations where it, to me, it feels very similar to feeling some sort of pity for someone who has committed, you know, a heinous crime. You know, someone has raped and tortured somebody and you find out that they themselves were beaten and abused all through their childhood. You know, yes, that's horrible. I hate that that happened to them, but this is a person that also possesses free will. They did not have to do this themselves. It was their choice to do it. Draco Malfoy, yes, he had a horrible upbringing. Yes, there were a lot of things ingrained in him from a small age, but, you know, he also made the choice to stick around those people. You know, at Hogwarts, we see even from this story, not all of the Slytherins were in on this campaign. You know, he could have chosen to become friends with some of the ones who didn't feel that way he could have chosen to become friends in other houses you know i mean there are a lot of things that he could have chosen to do differently but he didn't he didn't and now he is you know twisted and yes it sucks that anyone has to be twisted that way but at this point you know when he was a kid younger a child you know, you could kind of excuse his behavior because that was all he had, ever, that he had ever known. But now he's a man. He has the opportunity to make his choices and to choose his own path. And he chooses to stay down this path.
2: Right, but at the same time, with with the life that he led with his father, as I said, kind of holding the reins, how much choice did he really have as long as his father was old? You know, he lived his entire life catering to every whim that his father had. He, You know, we talk about keeping up appearances, the most important appearance to him was his father. What does my father think of me? Does my father approve of, of who I am and what I'm doing? That's the, really... Contrast, what,
1: contrast Draco to Sirius. They grew up in a very similar family. Sirius made the choice to not follow that path.
2: I don't think it was ever as important to Sirius what people thought of
1: him like it is to Draco. Yes and no. I mean, I can imagine as a child that Sirius felt very similarly the way Malfoy did. He just wanted to make the parents proud. And he chose to make friends with people that would allow him to see that his parents' way was wrong. And he came to that realization on his own, and he was disowned for it. But, I mean, and he had to live, you know, he ran away and all this stuff, and and his family hated him. But you know what? He did it because he knew what was right and what was wrong. And then you look at Draco, came from the same background, but chose to keep going right in that same direction.
2: No, you're right. I mean, ultimately, you do choose your own path, and especially once you get to be a teenager and an adult, you do. You you make your, your choices, and you live with them, and uh, he's, this is what he's living with now from the choices he's made, and uh, it, it really, you know, I, it, and I, I would never absolve him of any of the things that he's done, um, but this, like I said, this from here on, as I read the rest of the story, I looked at him not so much as a character I hated, but as a character who was truly, and I mean this in the, in the literal definition of the term, pathetic. He was just a pathetic yeah. individual.
1: And I'm sorry, I knew that there was something up with that ring from the first time I heard them mention it. Yep, <laughs> yep.
0: Yeah. Uh, something about that ring, I'll think about it when I wake up. I just love that. I have to go to bed. I wish I could tell someone. <laughs> All right. Um, I just wanna we're gonna end here for the evening. I really would like to thank Phil for jumping in here and contacting us and uh, joining up uh for this episode. I know it's actually very early for him right now. There's a huge shot uh, it's like a what like a thirteen hour time difference. Um but I just definitely wanna thank you so much for um for coming out of the woodwork and contacting us and for the great things you've said about the show and we hope to have you back and hope to see you on the forums and um just thanks for being part of this conversation. You brought a lot to it.
2: Thank you very much. I, I, I really appreciated uh, being invited and uh, hope I brought something to the table.
0: Oh, you definitely brought something to the table. You, you debated Ren on, on Draco and we can never have enough of that on the show. <laughs>
1: <sighs> we also want to thank as usual Arabella and Zenya for Arabella and Zinya for for creating this wonderful world and letting us talk about it. We want to thank Harry and the Potters for our wonderful theme song. We want to thank Rila Starsky for the artwork that's on our site. We want to encourage everyone out there in listener land to join our forum at PotterFitForums.com. We'd love to hear your opinions on everything.
0: And uh, that's actually a forum, just in case people go to a porn site right there. And um, also uh, if anyone has any questions or comments or thanks or anything they would like Uh, Arabella and Jenya to hear, please uh, start sending in your emails and your voicemails and your audio files to us now. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you soon. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks very much. Good night, everybody. I love you Hey, Potterfic. This is Kate from the forums. I don't really have anything too terribly interesting to say, but I just thought I'd leave a voicemail and say Hi. Um, what I can say is I love the forums, and I love talking to you guys. Maybe a little too much for my own good, because I can blame all of you for my steadily falling GPA. You know, good Ravenclaw and all. Um, I just glad I'd let you hear my voice. Oh, and Ryan, I was about two seconds away from doing my witty after the end song, but some things came up, and yeah, that's never gonna happen, but um, I'll talk to you guys and I don't think Expector Sacrificum could have worked if he didn't love these people. Actually, I take that back. Expector Sacrificum. All right, let me just actually make a different point. And when you look at Expector Sacrificum, <laughs> you like how I did that there? Right on my feet. But I, when you listen to the podcast, I will sound fabulous. It's Hang got on, three big sections to, to it.
1: Oh, oh, my God. Go I really in the other room. I really
0: hope she's talking to the dog. Okay. <laughs> Uh, we got Bill and Fleur. <laughs> yes, I know.
1: <am. laughs> We've got Malfoy and Nan. Bill is at the borough, and he's attempting to break down Fleur's wards. Yeah. Fleur's wards.
0: Yeah. Let me try that. Fleur's wards are not breaking. If you've heard anything in this episode that you would like to comment on or would like to contribute to the show, you can email any of our staff at their names at potherficweekly.com or you can email staff at potherficweekly.com. If you would like to send in a voicemail message, you can either call 781 352 0643 and you can leave a voicemail up to two minutes in length or you can email us. audio file to our email address, and we can play that on the show. You can also download a program called the Gizmo Project, and you can uh, contact us that way through your computer. For more information, visit potherficweekly.com.